and welcome to For We Are Many. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I accidentally clicked the wrong track and only played the guitar track instead of like the fully finished sound. Because <laughs> I'm awesome like that. <laughs> Hi, this is Trisha. And I'm Chelsea. <laughs> so you're like waiting for it. Um, this is part two of our series on Bell Hook's book, Killing Rage, Ending Racism. Um, last week we got through the intro in the first two chapters. So today we will be starting with chapter three representations of whiteness in the black imagination. If you're reading along with us, that is on page 31 of the paperback. Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to add? Not really. Uh, it's been a week, so I've lost all the thoughts from a week ago. Hey, I think a week ago we were before the, uh, whole Ukraine thing, which we won't get into that, but I think that like my brain has just changed since then, so I lost it. <laughs> Fair. Fair. It's, <laughs> it's been a whole of a time deciphering all that shit that's going on over there. And it's kind of insane with some of the arguments between folks online about it when it's just like, look, there's no good guy here. But yeah, I've been so overwhelmed by that head change that uh, <laughs> I'm like, I remember last week, and that's about all. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, if y'all are ready to dive back in here, I'll go ahead and uh, grab the audio file. Let's see. Um... And there's that. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm surprised that actually brought it up on screen this time. It didn't do that yeah. last week. Oh, duh. You were sharing the audio yeah. last week. Never. <laughs> yeah. I was I like, never why have you done that? No. I can't believe that you found it. I looked everywhere for that on the, on the left. Um, I didn't get it down. I couldn't find it. It was some goofy shit. I'll walk you through it after we get done here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was crazy having to like go through links and actually download software for this. It's just crazy that after having downloaded the audio for this last week, when I logged back into it today, it made me download it again. So it didn't even it's have any retention. It's the non-functioning thing i've ever seen right and this is supposed i don't know to if you put it together but for... it's absolutely not functional at all right like this how how is this like you have to this really sit there and think about it tool. like you're like where do i go i need this so badly <laughs> right <laughs> i was very <laughs> i was like no please but can you just give it to me <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, this this software is a little extra 
but you know, at, at least it's functional and uh, it saves our vocal cords some. Have we shared this yet? Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and hit play here. Cool. Black media trivialization of black rage reinforces white denial that white supremacy exists, that it is institutionalized perpetuated by a system that condones the dehumanization of black people by encouraging everyone to dismiss rage against racism as in no way a response to concrete reality since the black folks they see complaining are affluent. Concurrently, affluent blacks are rarely linking their rage to any progressive challenge and critique of white supremacy rooted in solidarity with the black masses. Made to feel ashamed that they or anyone else dare to even speak about rage rage at racial discrimination, often often privileged class black people are the group most eager to silence discussions of militant rage, potentially challenging in white supremacist patriarchy. They simply want equal access to privilege within the existing structure. However, when Did something go wrong with the audio? If your connection is bad, I can also play it. I can't hear you at all. Uh, I muted my mic and forgot. That wasn't my signal cutting out. That was me trying to make the window smaller so I could see if anybody joined us in the chat on YouTube. And it it made the sound glitch for a second. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> I, it, I couldn't tell if it was just a lady reading it or what was going on. Um... Yeah, that's fine. You know, that that was me trying to resize the window so I could see all of the stuff on the display. Okay. It didn't work well for me. <laughs> that's fine. I It just sounded weird for a second, and I couldn't figure out if it was the reading or if it was you or, like, so you're good. It's, it's a computer being weird. <sighs> okay. And black rage appear pathological rather than identify the structure wherein that rage surfaces. At times, black rage may express itself pathologically. However, it also can express itself in ways that lead to constructive empowerment. Black rage against injustice, against systems of domination, particularly as it is expressed in black youth culture, is mirrored in the rebellion against the white... I also just noticed that the time that we scrolled it to there was oh i must have fucked up that's why i'm looking at this and i was confused 
I'm sorry. I had it at 57.45 and I just noticed that somehow it backed up to 55.34. And I'm like, why are we on page 29? We're supposed to be on 31. I was trying to figure out what page I was on. I thought it was me that it was, it was I was like, I really didn't miss it for that long. So. Well, I looked on the screen here. Like I started off right wrong because I. It says page twenty nine at the bottom, and I'm like. I was sharing links when it started, so I thought that I was behind. So we're just we are amateur. Okay. Page uh, two. Too far. Page thirty. My generation. Oh Jesus! It wants to go two pages at a time. That's the difference between my generation and their kids. It's supposed to be it. The suspect murdered. Fifty-seven forty-five. Here we go again. Do you want me to go on with mine? No, I just want this damn thing to quit scrolling so fast, where I can at least get it to fifty-seven minutes. Oh my God, this is dumb. I'm, I'm so sorry. It's a very finicky thing. So, I mean, I could just start it on mine and then. In the rebellion, page 30. My generation marked the Martin Luther King. I guess we can listen to one page play out. I don't know. This is. my generation and their kids. I'm going to take a bite of my food. This is a generation of kids who are tired and white who are less willing to engage in denial. A generation that may be willing to launch organized collective resistance. White and black conservatives alike fear them and want to wipe out. It's a good ending to the last chapter. Any possibility that it they really might was. join together to engage in processes of radical polit politicization that would transform this nation. Racist white adults want their children to fear blackness so that they will not cross race boundaries and unite in political solidarity. They want them to see black rage as always and only pathological rather than as a just response to an unjust situation. Mm -hmm. These bourgeois whites, like many of their black counterparts, do not want rage against the status quo to assume the form of strategic resistance. Hence, their mutual investment in mocking and trivializing black rage. The rage of the oppressed is never the same as the rage of the privileged. One group can change their lot only by changing the system. The other hopes to be rewarded within the system. Public focus on black rage, the attempt to trivialize and dismiss it, must be subverted by public discourse about the pathology of white supremacy, the madness it creates. Talk seriously about rage. White supremacy is frightening. It promotes mental illness and various dysfunctional behaviors on the part of whites and not whites. It is the real and present danger. It is the real and present danger, not black rage. End of essay three. Page 31, essay four, representations of whiteness in the black imagination. Although there has never been any official body of black people in the United States who have gathered as anthropologists and or ethnographers to study whiteness, black folks have, from slavery on, shown another special knowledge of whiteness gleaned from close scrutiny of white people. Deemed special because it was not a way of knowing that has been recorded fully in written lit material, its purpose was to help black folks cope and survive in a white supremacist society. For years, black domestic servants working in white homes, acting as informants, brought knowledge back to segregated communities. Details, facts, observations, and psychoanalytic, re psychoanalytic readings of the white other. 
sharing a fascination with difference that white people have collectively expressed openly and at times vulgarly as they have traveled around the world in pursuit of the other and otherness. Black people, especially those living during the historical period of racial apartheid and legal segregation, have similarly maintained steadfast and ongoing curiosity about the ghosts, the barbarians, these strange apparitions they were forced to serve. Page 32. In the chapter on wildness in Shamanism, Colonialism, and the Wild Man, Michael Taussig urges a stretching of our imagination and understanding of the other. Can you hear anything? imperialism colonialism and racism actively um sorry is the audio for the book not coming through i don't know what happened i was at um shamanism colonialism and the wild man oh wow that's weird is it playing now or worse black folks to internalize yeah negative yeah yeah, I mean, I oh. didn't highlight that part. Um, I didn't highlight until 33, so. Okay, let me just. Page 30. My generation go back to the top of the page. In the chapter on wildness in Shamanism, Colonialism, and the Wild Man, Michael Taussig urges a stretching of our imagination and understanding of the other to include inscriptions on the edge of official history. Naming his critical project, identifying the passion he brings to the quest to know more deeply you who are not ourselves, Tausig explains, quote, I'm trying to reproduce a mode of perception, a way of seeing through a, a way of talking. Figuring the world through dialogue that comes alive with sudden transformative force in the crannies of everyday life's pauses and juxtapositions, as in the kitchens of the Putumayo or in the streets around the church in the Niña Maria. It's always a way of representing the world in the roundabout speech of the collage of things. It is a mode of perception that catches on the debris of history." End quote. I, too, am in search of the debris of history. I'm wiping the dust off past conversations to remember some of what was shared in the old days when black folks had little intimate contact with whites, when we were much more open about the way we connected whiteness with the mysterious, the strange, and the terrible. Of course, everything has changed. 
Now many black people live in the bush of ghosts and do not know themselves separate from whiteness. They do not know this thing we call difference. Systems of domination, imperialism, colonialism, and racism actively coerce black folks to internalize negative perceptions of blackness, to be self-hating. Many of us succumb to this, page 33. Yet blacks who imitate whites, adopting their values, speech habits of being, and so forth, continue to regard whiteness with suspicion, fear, and even hatred. This contradictory longing to possess the reality of the other, even though that reality is one that wounds and negates, is expressive of the desire to understand the mystery, to know intimately through imitation, as though such knowing, worn like an amulet, a mask, will ward away the evil, the terror. Searching the critical work of post-colonial critics, I found much writing that bespeaks the continued fascination with the way white minds particularly the colonial imperialist traveler, perceived blackness and very little expressed interest in representations of whiteness in the black imagination. Black cultural and social critics allude to such representations in their writing. Yet only a few have dared to make explicit those perceptions of whiteness that they think will discomfort or antagonize readers. James Baldwin's collection of essays, Notes of a Native Son, explores these issues with a clarity and frankness that is no longer fashionable in a world where evocations of pluralism and diversity differences arbitrarily imposed by white racist domination. Addressing the way in which whiteness exists without knowledge of blackness, even as it collectively asserts control, Baldwin links issues of recognition to the practice of imperialist racial domination. Writing about being the first black person to visit a Swiss village with only white inhabitants in his essay, Stranger in the Village, Baldwin notes his response to the village's yearly ritual of painting individuals black who were then positioned as slaves and bought so that the villagers could celebrate their concern with converting the souls of the natives. Quote, Holy Fuck. I know. I, I, I mean, it's like I like I highlighted parts of that, but like I don't even have anything that I can. Yeah, yeah me neither. All I had to add was a holy fuck. Like, are you fucking serious? I. Ooh. Yeah. I will let her continue because she's about <laughs> to quote this fucking passage here. Oh, goodness. What the fuck? Anyway. <laughs> I thought of white men arriving for the first time in an African village, strangers there, as I am a stranger here, and tried to imagine the astounded populace touching their hair, marveling at the color of their skin. Page 34. But there is a great difference between being the first white man to be seen by Africans and being the first black man to be seen by whites. The white man takes the astonishment as tribute, for he arrives to conquer and to convert the natives, whose inferiority in relation to himself is not even to be questioned. Whereas I, without a thought of conquest, find myself among a people whose culture controls me, has even, in a sense, created me. People who have cost me more in anguish and rage than they will ever know who yet do not even know of my existence. The ex astonishment with which I might have greeted them, should they have stumbled into my African village a few hundred years ago, 
might have rejoiced their hearts, but the astonishment with which they greet me today can only poison mine." End quote. My thinking about representations of whiteness in the black imagination has been stimulated by classroom discussions about the way in which the absence of recognition is a strategy that facilitates making a group the other. In these classrooms, there have been heated debates among students when white students respond with disbelief, shock, and rage as they listen to black students talk about whiteness, when they are compelled to hear observations, stereotypes, and so forth, that are offered as data gleaned from close scrutiny and study. Usually, white students respond with naive amazement that black people critically assess white people from a standpoint where whiteness is the privileged signifier. Their amazement that black people watch white people with a critical ethnographic gaze is itself an expression of racism. Often their rage erupts because they believe that all ways of looking that highlight difference subvert the liberal belief in a universal subjectivity. We are all just people that they think will make racism disappear. Page 36. Reduced to the machinery of bodily physical hate labor, Black people learned to appear before whites as though they were zombies, cultivating the habit of casting the gaze downward so as not to appear uppity. To look directly was an assertion of subjectivity, equality. Safety resided in the pretense of invisibility. Even though legal racial apartheid no longer is a norm in the United States, the habits that uphold and maintain institutionalized white supremacy linger. Since most white people do not have to see black people constantly appearing on billboards, television, movies, and magazines, and so forth, and they do not need to be ever on guard, nor to observe black people to be safe, they can live as though black people are invisible, and they can imagine that they're also invisible to blacks. Some white people may even imagine there is no representation of whiteness in the black imagination, especially one that is based on concrete observa observation or mythic conjecture. They think they are seen by black folks only as they want to appear. Ideologically, the rhetoric of white supremacy supplies a fantasy of whiteness. Described in Richard Dyer's essay, White, this fantasy makes whiteness synonymous with goodness. Quote, Power in contemporary society habitually passes itself off as embodied in the normal as opposed to the superior. This is common to all forms of power, but it works in a peculiarly seductive way with whiteness because, because of the way it seems rooted in common sense thought. And okay, I see you uh, wanted to pause for a moment. You have something to add here? Yeah, well, I tried to talk, but it wouldn't let me talk either, which was weird. Um, I feel like it skipped a page, but I did hear what she was talking about with um, white people thinking that, gay, that they give away um, only the impression that they want to give um, to to black people, um, which I I was already sort of aware of this mindset um, just through my religious upbringing um with the dark and the light and the manifest destiny kind of thing like i was already aware like yeah. just upon just upon conceptualizing what it's actually doing to the world it didn't have anything to do with like human interaction or anything like that it was more that um it was just conceptual was was all and so right. i it once i understood it light is good i understood it i think more from a religious standpoint 
than anything because I did get into other religions. And so then getting into other religions, it did show me the discrimination inside of the race of these religions as well. Um, so it, it makes sense to me that white people think that they can present themselves in a certain way and that people are going to perceive them as they like to put across because that is how white people interact completely. And this is a lot of the reason why white people do not understand what minorities are talking about within discrimination or what women on a lesser level to an extent, like white women deal with to a lesser extent, because you're listening to things that are, it's just all projection. That's all that it is. And that's like the biggest problem is that we're, we're seeing people regardless of race learn this white projection it's like this is who i want you to think that i am and i'm selling you this and i'm doing this and and so it makes sense i don't know like just in this context if that's where it's coming but that's what my head went to as far as just how we interact completely right like putting that front up of this is what I'm telling you I am. So therefore you must only be able to perceive me as this. It, it makes me think of that mentality of the people that show up. So I can't talk show up for church on Sunday and holier than that. But the rest of the week they're doing all the shit that they like look down their noses at other people for doing because, Oh, it violates my religion. It's like, you only pretend to follow that when you're trying to give that impression of, you know, to other people of like, this is how I want you to see me. It's people having their fronts up. It's, it's fake. And uh, yeah, I see John's commenting here. He said, uh, Chelsea is correct in this coming from religious association with religious supremacy rooted in European culture. Yep. And uh, and this factor too here, manifest destiny and the church officiating, uh, taking indigenous lands is right by God. Yep. And this is the type of stuff that we're talking about when when people get all confused, like what do you mean, of pointing out that systemic racism was built on the back of religion because it. It literally gives you clearly defined lines there for um, racism, for sexism, all kinds of things, and says, this is what's good and holy. Well, and that is also why we um, we correct things when they're out of line, because there are a lot of ways in which we still don't see this. Um, and so it's not necessarily of just like pointing fingers and making victims out of things or calling people sexist or racist. It's because even in leftist spaces, sometimes you still don't realize what's coming out of your mouth. Right. Fair. Um, I, once we start again, I do need to know, um, because it said that it was on page 36 after we finished page 34 um or after we were getting into 35 yeah okay so it like it was at the end of 34 and then it said page 36 and i was like 
What? Um, let me rewind that then. Mm, no, I mean, where do you know where you're at? Um, yeah, we're, I didn't highlight much I'm, in this, and I was still listening, so it's fine. So if you know where we're at, just let me know, and I can. Um. Uh, the the bottom of page thirty six, right before the quote from Dyer's essay, White. Okay, that's was, fine. Where I paused it. Am I yeah, no, I was still listening, it? so that was why I did want to say something because I was still listening. So. Okay. Uh, there we go. other than ethnic difference page 37 quote continues thus it is said even in liberal textbooks that there are inevitable associations of white with light and therefore safety and black with dark and therefore danger and this explains racism whereas one might well argue about the safety of the cover of darkness and the danger of exposure to the light Again, and with more justice, people point to the Jewish and Christian use of white and black to symbolize good and evil as carried still in such expressions as a black mark, white magic, to blacken the character, and so on. Socialized to believe the fantasy that whiteness represents goodness and all that is benign and non-threatening, many white people assume this is the way black people conceptualize whiteness. They do not imagine that the way whiteness makes its presence felt in black life, most often as terrorizing imposition, a power that wounds, hurts, tortures, is a reality that disrupts the fantasy of whiteness as representing goodness, end quote. And I have to interject right here because this right here, what she just got done reading, that's what a lot of white people don't fucking understand and they take personally when they hear black people say things about white devils and shit like that. And it's like, how about you look at how white people have negatively impacted black people for hundreds of fucking years, at least right here. You know, like this, this is a, for a me, I take it a step further too, because like once we get like a little bit further, I think it's in the next chapter. Um, it does get into church things, which like I'll say what I what I don't know or what I think, whatever, then once we get to that. But like um, I've seen this whole dark and light thing like play out in I've mentioned it before. It's Exterminate All the Brutes and it's uh, by Raoul Peck, um, but it shows it more in the way that um, people or white people went against um indigenous cultures because there is this one painting of this woman in white that's like flying she's like an angel and she's got these like telephone wires that are really like telegram i think at the end and she is coming back from the light spreading the light towards like the darkness and the death in front of it and so it is specifically going against cultures of goddess religion or chaos or just things that are more nature related than Christianity is. And so it's spreading across to, and, and so not only does that take it out of our minds, but like more obviously in front of us, it is killing specific races and cultures. Um, and so I see that more played out in the history of, but like, there's still a lot of 
obviously black churches um, that were in Tulsa whenever the race riots happened and just black churches in general, but like you don't really see just the way that they were both exploited is different. Um, yeah. The atrocities were fucked either way, but um, I don't know. You just see it more gradually and slowly play out when you're looking at it from a religious perspective with indigenous people. Um, I think honestly, it's more brutal the way that it's happened with slavery and bringing, because nobody even knows what they, what their heritage is, what their religion may have been. Mm -hmm. It completely erased connection with even which tribes they came from in Africa, what region in most cases, unless you're lucky enough to be able to get a DNA test that can even trace back what region, um, you know, it, that was total erasure of identity of cultural fucking identity across the board. And yes, this is probably the worst example of what whiteness in America has done when impacting another culture, but it, it it's done it to everything, every fucking thing. It has erased black people's direct connection with where they came from in Africa. It has erased native people's roots, even with their spirituality. They were fucking legally banned from even doing dances. Like straight up could not practice indigenous religion, spirituality, all practices banned until like the seventies. I remember that. I remember learning about that. I couldn't remember what the dates are of it, but I know what you're talking about. I'm I'm pretty sure it was the 70s when the, those laws finally got lifted. Like how they could pass those fucking laws is beyond me in a country that claimed to, you know, be getting built on religious freedom and all it really was was freedom to pick which flavor of fucking Christianity you wanted because everything else was forced erasure. And it's fucked. This is the damage that fucking whiteness has had upon at least this society. I don't live anywhere else, so I can't really speak for the dynamics in other places that have also experienced this type of racism. But this is a very special case. I don't know if I really want to use that word, but um, given that... This is the one place in the world where black people were legally fucking enslaved for over 400 years and treated as less than human and still for another hundred or so um, treated as less than human when it came to legal rights, slowly, gradually fucking getting spoon fed of like, oh, okay, guess you can have this now type shit. And it's fucked up. It's fucked up. Like, I, I'm aware that there is anti-blackness in other parts of the world, too. But here, it really has a fucked, a profoundly fucked effect on people's psyche. When we're talking about things like the, the generational trauma that has happened, 
And it's because of being treated as not even fucking human for hundreds of fucking years. It's fucking horrendous. Uh, can't see if there's any comments. Um, mostly just links we can read later. Oh, and he's sharing the HBO link. I think it's also on, um, I can't remember if it's on Amazon Prime or Hulu. It's on something else besides HBO. Yeah, I tried looking for it, and it wasn't on my streaming service, and I'm kind of pissed. It should be. Um, I want to watch that, but uh, I just popped John's um, comment up here. He said, class is also a driving force in racism with the subjugation of people according to wealth and the education wealth afforded back then. That's still applicable today, too. You know, I mean, for fuck's sake... Like they had to, you know, pass laws requiring that certain number of people who are non-white be allowed in classes at schools and shit. And now oh. we have people playing victim like, oh, they, I should have gotten that spot in that class. It's like, on it's on Hulu with premium subscription and it's on YouTube with premium subscription and Amazon for $10 on Amazon Prime. Okay, well, my streaming service is supposed to have access to both Hulu and Amazon. So I'm going to check again because that should fucking be on there. I don't have a premium subscription to Hulu. Um, uh, I have like a student one, so it doesn't give me everything. Well, you know, if if one of us can actually get a, a fucking stream of that to share, we should do a movie night with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be cool. And, you know, like, we obviously won't be able to stream the movie, but well, we can... Especially that one, though. Because... ...with our regulars yeah. and our people on Patreon. Um and just invite you guys into like a private zoom room or something to be able to watch that together. Yeah. Um, it has been a hot minute since we've done a movie night. So no, that one would be um, cool too, because it keeps coming up. So. Right. Um, but you want to hear okay. again? Did you have anything else you wanted to add before I go back to the text? Um, let me take a short, very quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. Um, if we are going to pause for the pause for a second, yeah. then... My cat's ruining my life. I will see if there is another random music file that we can play here or something. Because Rob's got all kinds of stuff in um our google drive maybe play some music for you for a moment Ooh, and i'm dropping the whole window down i'm still riding that learning 
learning curve on this software, by the way. It seems to be slower. Um, oh, your bike. Okay, I won't even bother changing the screen share to Google Drive music. No, though. yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't long. Okay. All right. I am going to hit play and I'll still be able to hear, but I got to get up and go shut my air conditioning off. Okay. The sun went down. The temp is quickly dropping. Don't need that no more. Collectively, black people remain rather silent about representations of whiteness in the black imagination. As in the old days of racial segregation, where black folks learned to wear the mask, many of us pretend to be comfortable in the face of whiteness, only to turn our backs and give expression to intense levels of discomfort. Especially talked about is the representation of whiteness as terrorizing. Without evoking a simplistic essentialist us and them dichotomy that suggests black folks merely invert stereotypical racist interpretations so that black becomes synonymous with goodness and white with evil, I want to focus on that representation of whiteness that is not formed in reaction to stereotypes, but emerges as a response to the traumatic pain and anguish that remains a consequence of white racist domination, a psychic state that informs and shapes the way black folks see whiteness. Page 38. Stereotypes black folks maintain about white folks are not the only representations of whiteness in the black imagination. They emerge primarily as responses to white stereotypes of blackness. Lorraine Hansberry argues that black stereotypes of whites emerge as a trickle-down process of white stereotypes of blackness, where there is the projection onto an other, all that we deny about ourselves. In Young, Gifted, and Black, she identifies particular stereotypes about white people that are commonly cited in black communities and urges us not to celebrate this madness in any direction. Quote, is it not known in the ghetto that white people as an entity are dirty, especially white women who never seem to do their own cleaning, inherently cruel, the cold, fierce roots of Europe? Who else could put all those people into ovens scientifically? Smart, you really have to hand it to the MFs and anything but, because Loco has had to live with little passion in the guise of love and hatred all these centuries, and so on, end quote. Stereotypes, however inaccurate, are one form of representation. Like fictions, they are created to serve as substitution, standing in for what is real. They are there not to tell it like it is, but to invite and encourage pretense. They are a fantasy, a projection onto the other that makes them less threatening. Stereotypes abound when there is distance. They are an invention, a pretense that one knows when the steps that would make real knowing possible cannot be taken or are not allowed. Looking past stereotypes to consider various representations of whiteness in the black imagination, I appeal to memory to my earliest recollections of ways these issues were raised in black life. Page 39. Returning to memories of growing up in the social circumstances created by racial apartheid to all black spaces on the edges of town, I re-inhabit a location where black folks associated whiteness with the terrible, the terrifying, the terrorizing. White people were regarded as terrorists, especially those who dared to enter that segregated space of blackness. 
As a child, I did not know any white people. They were strangers, rarely seen in our neighborhoods. The official white men who came across the tracks were there to sell product, Bibles, and insurance. They terrorized by economic exploitation. What did I see in the gazes of those white men who crossed our thresholds that made me afraid, that made black children unable to speak? Did they understand at all how strange their whiteness appeared in our living rooms, how threatening? Did they journey across the tracks with the same adventurous spirit that other white men carried to Africa, Asia, to those mysterious places they would one day call the third world? Did they come to our houses to meet the other face-to-face -face and enact the colonizer role dominating us on our own turf? Their presence terrified me. Whatever their mission, they looked too much like the unofficial white men who came to enact rituals of terror and torture. As a child, I did not know how to tell them apart, how to ask the real white people to please stand up. The terror that I, that I felt is one black people have shared. Whites learn about it secondhand, confessing in soul, sister, that she too began to feel this terror after changing her skin to appear black and going to live in the South. Grace Halsell described her altered sense of whiteness. Page 40, quote, Caught in this climate of hate, I am totally terror-stricken, and I search my mind to know why I am fearful of my own people. Yet, they no longer seem my people, but rather the enemy, a hostile territory mission. My wild heartbeat is a sense of terror. I know what I cannot possibly experience, what they, the black people, experience. End quote. Black folks raised in the North do not escape the sense of terror. In her autobiography, Every Goodbye Ain't Gone, Itabari N-J-E-R-I begins the narrative of her northern childhood with a memory of southern roots, traveling south as, as an adult to investigate the murder of her grandfather by white youth who were drag racing and ran him down in the streets. And Jerry recalls it for many years, quote, the distance distant and accidental violence that took my grandfather's life could not compete with my psychological terror that had begun to engulf my own body, end quote. Ultimately, she began to link that terror with the history of black people in the United States, seeing it as an imprint carried from the past to the present, quote. As I grew older, my grandfather assumed mythic proportions in my imagination. Even in absence, he filled my room like music and watched over me when I was fearful. His fantasized presence diverted thoughts of my father's drunken rages. With age, my fantasizing ceased. The image of my grandfather faded. What lingered was the memory of his caress, the pain of something missing in my life, wrenched away by reckless white youths. I had a growing sense, the beginning of an inevitable comprehension that this society deals blacks a disproportionate share of pain and denial, end quote. And Jerry's journey takes her through the pain and terror of the past, only the memories do not fade. They linger, as does the pain and bitterness. Page 41. Again, a back, against a backdrop of personal loss, against the evidence of history, that fills me with the knowledge of the hateful behavior of whites toward blacks. I see people of Bainbridge, and I cannot trust them. I cannot absolve them. 
If it is possible to conquer terror through ritual enactment, that is what Angeri does. She goes back to the scene of the crime, dares to face the enemy. It is this confrontation that forces the terror of history to loosen its grip. To name that whiteness in the black imagination is often a representation of terror. One must face written histories that erase and deny, that reinvent the past to make the present vision of racial harmony and pluralism more plausible. To bear the burden of memory, one must willingly journey to places long uninhabited, searching the debris of history for traces of the unforgettable, all knowledge of which has been suppressed. And Jerry laments that nobody really knows us. She writes, quote, so, institu so institutionalized is the ignorance of our history, our culture, our everyday existence, that often we do not even know ourselves, end quote. Theorizing black experience, we seek to uncover, restore, as well as to deconstruct so that new paths, different journeys are possible. Indeed, Edward Said said in his essay, Traveling Theory, argues that theory can threaten reification as well as the entire bourgeois system on which reification depends with destruction. The call to theorize black experience is constantly challenged and, and subverted by conservative voices reluctant to move from fixed locations. Said reminds us, quote, theory omission is one as a result of a process that begins when consciousness first experiences its own terrible ossification and the general reification of all things under capitalism. Then when consciousness generalizes or class or classes itself as something opposed to other objects and feels itself as contradiction to or crisis within objectification there emerges a consciousness of change in the status quo finally moving toward freedom and fulfillment consciousness looks ahead to complete self-realization which is of course the revolutionary process stretching forward in time perceivable now only as theory or projection, end quote. Page 42, traveling, moving into the past, and Jerry pieces together fragments. Who does she see staring into the face of a southern white man who was said to be the murderer? Does the terror in his face mirror the look of the unsuspecting black man whose death history does not name or record? Baldwin wrote that, People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. There is, then, only the fantasy of escape, or the promise that what is lost will be found, rediscovered, and returned. For black folks, reconstructing an archaeology of memory makes return possible, the journey to a place we can never call home, even as we re-inhabit it to make sense of present locations. Such journeying cannot be fully encompassed by conventional notions of travel. Spinning off from Said's essay, James Clifford, in Notes on Travel and Theory, celebrates the idea of journeying, asserting, quote, This sense of worldly mapped movement is also why it may be worth holding on to the term travel, despite its connotation of middle-class literary or recreational journeying spatial practices long associated with male experiences and virtues. Travel suggests at least profanity following public routes and beaten tracks. 
How do different populations, classes, and genders travel? What kinds of knowledge, stories, and theories do they produce? A crucial research agenda opens up, end quote. Text page 43. Reading this piece and listening to Clef Clifford talk about theory and travel, I appreciate appreciated his efforts to expand the travel theoretical frontier so that it might be more inclusive, even as I considered that to answer the questions he poses is to propose a deconstruction of the conventional sense of travel and put alongside it, or in its place, a theory of the journey that would expose the extent to which holding on to the concept of travel as we know it is also a way to hold on to imperialism. For some individuals, clinging to the conventional sense of travel allows them to remain fascinated with imperialism, to write about it, seductively evoking what Renato Rizzaldo calls, in culture and truth, imperialist nostalgia. Significantly, he reminds readers that even politically progressive North American audiences have enjoyed the elegance of manners governing relations of dominance and subordination between the races. Theories of travel produced outside conventional borders might want the journey to become the rubric within which travel, as a starting point for discourse, is associated with different headings, rites of passage, immigration, enforced migration, relocation, enslavement, and homelessness. Travel is not a word that can be easily evoked to talk about the middle passage, the trail of tears, the landing of Chinese immigrants, the forced relocation of Japanese Americans, or the plight of the homeless. Theorizing diverse journeying is crucial to our understanding of any politics of location. As Clifford asserts at the end of his essay, quote, theory is always written from some where, and that where is less a place than itineraries, different concrete histories of dwelling, immigration, exile, migration. These include the migration of third world intellectuals into the metropolitan universities to pass through or to remain changed by their travel, but marked by places of origin, by peculiar allegiances and alienations, end quote. Text page 44. Listening to Clifford playfully evoke a sense of travel, I felt such an evocation would always make it difficult for there to be recognition of an experience of travel that is not, not about play, but as an encounter with terrorism. And it's crucial that we recognize that the hegemony of one experience of travel can make it impossible to articulate another experience or for it to be heard from, be heard from certain standpoints to travel is to encounter the terrorizing force of white supremacy. To tell my travel stories, I must name a movement from racially segregated Southern community, from rural black Baptist origin to prestigious white university settings. I must be able to speak about what it is like to be leaving Italy after I have given a talk on racism and feminism hosted by the parliament, only to stand for hours while I am interrogated by white officials who do not have to respond when I inquire as to why the questions they ask me are different from those asked the white people in, the, in line before me. 
thinking only that I must endure this public questioning, the stares of those around me, because my skin is black. I am startled when I am asked if I speak Arabic, when I am told that women like me receive presents from men without knowing what those presents are. Reminded of another time when I was strip-searched by, by French officials who were stopping black people to make sure we were not illegal immigrants and or terrorists. I think that one fantasy of whiteness is that the threatening other is always a terrorist. This projection enables many white people to imagine there is no representation of whiteness as terror, as terrorizing, page 45. Yet, it is this representation of whiteness in the black imagination, first learned in the narrow confines of poor black rural community that is sustained by my travels to many different locations. I'm going to pause that there for a moment because what she just described I have that highlight. It's also how white America fucking reacted to pretty much anybody who looked like they even could be from the Middle East or anywhere stretching from there into India. All being treated like you must be a fucking terrorist because you're brown. I feel like I highlighted a lot of this chapter and then I'm just like, well, yeah, that, that's what... She said it. <laughs> that <laughs> it, it's one of those things that is is so fucking pervasive in white American society to completely fucking demonize people on their pigment level of like, oh wait, somebody who looks like you did something bad. Fuck all of you. And Every fucking time that I see racist ass white people putting shit out there like that, I'm like, excuse me, hold the fucking train. Because if you want to look at the statistics, over 90% of terrorist activity in the United States has been committed by white male Christians. So who's the real terror threat here? Do you see everybody being like, oh, Fuck all white men because they are literally the number one fucking risk factor in this country. Nope. And the only reason why you don't is because they're white. Yeah. They have a God complex inside of a God complex. And so they just need to feel special and recognized. Uh-huh. That's like most of, most of the people that just go along with these things. They're good old boy Christian people that don't do anything, but they raise people that want to be recognized and want to have more attention put on them than they will ever get. And they don't know how to get it. Um, and so it's just bizarre to me to see that people react this way to people that change cultures and change locations I mean, obviously, when you change a culture or location, you're more likely to adapt and not try to be overbearing. And so it just really, even logically, doesn't make sense that um, that white people wouldn't feel the most comfortable in the in this United States environment. It's like. And especially with the way that they treat that treat people, even if they're born here, even if their culture and their ethnicity is different. I mean, they already assume 
that that is so just by looking at someone without even when we all know that that has nothing to do with it anymore. Race has nothing to do with citizenship anymore. But like, I mean, that's how they look at it. I mean, even people that I grew up with, it look at, look at it that way. Right. It's one of those things that um, exemplifies white privilege that a lot of white people want to deny that they have. And it's like, no, you just don't realize because you are not being racially profiled like this simply because you're white and you don't even see it when you're racially profiling other people. Well, and most of them don't take themselves out of their comfort zone either. And so there's no way that they would ever come around to this perspective because they haven't had to put themselves in an environment that they otherwise would never have been in. Right. It's one of those things that, you know, people don't realize it, it doesn't even hit their fucking awareness because they've never been on the receiving end of it. And that alone is a privilege. And back to the text. To travel, I must always move through fear, confront terror. It helps to be able to link this individual experience to the collective journeying of black people, to the middle passage, to the mass migration of southern black folks to northern cities in the early part of the 20th century. Michel Foucault posits memory as a site of resistance. As Jonathan Arak, A-R-A-C, puts it in his introduction to postmodernism and politics. The process of remembering transforms history from a judgment on the past in the name of a present truth to a counter-memory that combats our current modes of truth and justice, helping us to understand and change the present by placing it in a new relation to the past. It is useful when theorizing black experience to examine the way the concept of terror is linked to representation of whiteness. In the absence of the reality of whiteness, I learned as a child to be safe. It was important to recognize the power of whiteness, even to fear it and to avoid encounter. There was nothing terrifying about the sharing of this knowledge as survival strategy. The terror was made real only when I journeyed from the black side of town to a predominantly white area near my grandmother's house. I had to pass through this area to reach her place. Describing these journeys across town and the home place, site of resistance, I remembered, quote, it was a movement away from the segregated blackness of our community into a poor white neighborhood. I remember the fear being scared to walk to Baba's, our grandmother's home, because we would have to pass that terrifying whiteness, those white faces on the porches staring us down with hate. Even when empty or vacant, those porches seemed to say, danger, you do not belong here, you are not safe, end quote. Page 46. Oh, that feeling of safety, of arrival, of homecoming, when we finally reached the edges of her yard, when we could see the soot-black face of our grandfather, Daddy Gus, sitting in his chair on the porch, smell his cigar, and rest on his lap. Such a contrast, that feeling of arrival, of homecoming. 
the sweetness and the bitterness of a journey, that constant reminder of white power and control. Even though it was a long time ago that I made this journey, associations of whiteness with terror and the terrorizing remain. Even though I live and move in spaces where I am surrounded by whiteness, there is no comfort that makes the terror disappear. All black people in the United States, irrespective of their class, status, or politics, live with the possibility that they will be terrorized by whiteness. This terror is most vividly described by black authors in fiction and fiction writing, particularly Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. Baby Suggs, the black prophet, who, who, who is most vocal about representations of whiteness, dies because she suffers an absence of color, surrounded by a lack, an empty space, taken over by whiteness. She remembers, quote, those white things have taken all I had or dreamed and broken my heartstrings too. There is no bad luck in the world but white folks, end quote. If the mask of whiteness, the pretense, represents it as always benign, benevolent, then what this representation obscures is the representation of danger, the sense of threat. During the period of racial apartheid, still known by many folks as Jim Crow, it was more difficult for black people to internalize this pretense. pretense. It was hard for us not to know that the shapes under white sheets had a mission to threaten, to terrorize. Page 47. That representation of whiteness and its association with innocence, which engulfed Emmett Till, was a sign, which are with the reminder of possible future terror. Morrison's beloved, the memory of terror is so deeply inscribed on the body of Sethi and in her consciousness, and the association of terror with whiteness is so intense that she kills her young son. She kills her young so that they will never know the terror. Explaining her actions to Paul D., she tells him that it is her job to keep them away from what I know is terrible. Of course, Sethi's attempt to end the historical anguish of black people only reproduces it in a different form. She conquers the terror through perverse reenactment, through resistance, using violence as a means of fleeing from history that is a burden too great to bear. It is the telling of our history that enables political self-recovery. In contemporary society, white and black people alike believe that racism no longer exists. This erasure, however, however mythic, diffuses the representation of whiteness as terror in the black imagination. It allows for assimilation and forgetfulness. The eagerness with which contemporary society does away with racism, replacing this recognition with evocation of pluralism and diversity that further mask a reality, is a response to the terror. It has also become a way to perpetuate the terror by providing a cover, a hiding place. Black people still feel the terror, still associated with whiteness, but are rarely able to articulate the varied ways we are terrorized because it is easy to silence by accusations of reverse racism or by suggesting that black folks who talk about the ways we are terrorized by whites are merely evoking victimization to demand special treatment. Page 48. When I attended 
Did you say pause it? Yeah. I can barely hear you while that's playing. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, I, I think that that was part of the problem before, uh, is that I thought that you could hear me, but I guess you can't. But um, no, that uh, hits really hard, sort of with also that song that I sent you today um, yeah. with Matt Plus. Um, and how we're like covering these issues politically and socially and things like that. And so we're getting more recognition for black people and for other minority rights and things like that. But in reality, again, we're not fixing anything um, legally. We're not fixing anything psychologically. And so um, sometimes I know I, that makes sense to me why people think not that I agree with them, but why they think that this is all just a gimmick kind of thing. And that's because really it's not hitting anything very hard on its head. It's just saying, cool, we acknowledge that you're being murdered all of the time or that you're disappearing all the time or um, whatever it may be. But like in reality, they're not really doing anything to fix it. It's just all Hollywood or or media. Right. Or selling, See, or selling shit. more shit. Performative shit like uh, what we were discussing the other day with cities painting Black Lives Matter on their streets but not doing fuck all about yeah. the cops who are still on their streets killing black people for not no fucking reason. that, but like, I mean, that's, that's all good and fine for the people that are just trying to get some fucking Facebook photos, but at the same time, like, even promoting black businesses is not going to fix this if we're not addressing what the problem is and doing something to change it within the system. Because, I mean, I love to see that we're promoting black businesses all the time, but what does it matter if any second they could be assaulted or searched all of the time? And right. it doesn't matter who you are. Um, and so it's just... It's like we're getting the promotion, we're getting the capitalist promotion out of things, but we're not actually getting any results. Right. Right, because um, even when it comes to stuff like that of, okay, moving up in class because you own your own business... That doesn't change that you can be treated with fucking racial profiling and other forms of racism. For fuck's sake, we have famous like rappers in California being pulled over and arrested for driving their own expensive cars because they are falsely accused of having stolen their own fucking car. Because wait a minute, you're black. How could you afford that? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? And that's a systemic issue that just making more money and being successful is never going to fix. It. The only way to fix this is to fix people's fucked up, stinking fucking thinking and actually change the system itself this was built on racism and sexism and the only way to fix those things is completely fucking destroy it because it is inherent to this system we need a new one 
We need a new one that isn't fucking built completely on white supremacy and male supremacy. It's fucked. And yes, John, you're correct. Capitalism is core to this systemic problem. Who wants to give up power? Nobody wants to give up power. We are very close to ending this one. I think this was longer than the second one. Yeah, I think so too. Oh, actually, the second one is half as long. And John, don't forget cooking out in the park while black. A Karen might call the cops on you. Like, fucking seriously, you can't even go to a public park and barbecue without... Somebody calling the cops like, oh, there's a black person here. Like, seriously? Uh, okay, there's there's this I've movie I've never I seen. I'm year. 45. Um, I've never seen a black person. <laughs> right? Um, this movie, I'm pretty sure it was called Karen. Um, it it was uh darkly comedic social critique of of Karen's fucking just perceiving people as a threat simply because of being black. And it follows this affluent black couple that moved into a predominantly white neighborhood. And by predominantly, I mean like 99.99%. I think there was maybe somebody in there already who was tan. I forget. But <laughs> this, this, fucking Karen bitch next door started like harassing them and stalking them and it's fucking crazy you should watch it um it's a BET production and it's it's twisted it really is twisted cuz there there are points where they are making really really bad societal jokes about the karens but it, it doesn't lose focus on the fact that this is a really fucking enormous problem a very real problem that we have bitches like that out there who will look you dead in the eye and be like well i'm not racist but i just thought that you know because you're black and living next door to me i should watch everything that you do i turned my cameras facing your house i have to monitor you Damn, like, what's really? that 50s what's that 50s fucking streaming show? It might be on Netflix. It's like these black people move into this white neighborhood in the 50s and it, but it's like a horror series. And so I'm not sure. Oh man. We'll have to figure that out later. But maybe it was called them. I don't look it up to see if you can find it because uh, that could be an interesting movie night deep dive too. Uh, and back to uh, I think it's called them. What? I think it's called them. Okay. Turn cultural studies. I was reminded of the way in which the discourse of race is increasingly divorced from any recognition of the politics of racism. Attending the conference because I was confident that I would be in the company of like-minded, aware, progressive intellectuals. I was disturbed when the usual arrangements of white supremacist hierarchy were mirrored both 
in terms of who was speaking, of how bodies were arranged on the stage, of who was in the audience. All of this revealed the underlying assumption of what voices were deemed worthy to speak and be heard. As the conference progressed, I began to feel afraid. If these progressive people, most of whom were white, could so blindly reproduce a version of the status quo and not see it, the thought of how racial politics would be played out outside this arena was horrifying. That feeling of terror that I had known so intimately in my childhood surfaced without even considering whether the audience was able to shift from the prevailing standpoint and hear another perspective. I talked openly about that sense of terror. Later, I heard stories of white women joking about how ludicrous it was for me in their eyes, I suppose. I represent the bad, tough black woman to say I felt terrorized. Their inability to conceive that my terror like that of Sethi's, as a response to the legacy of white domination and the contemporary expressions of white supremacy is an indication of how little this culture really understands the profound psychological impact of white racist domination. At this same conference, I bonded with a progressive black woman and her companion, a white man like me. They were troubled by the extent to which folks chose to ignore the way white supremacy was informing the structure of the conference. Talking with a black woman, I asked her, what do you do when you are tired of confronting white racism, tired of the day-to-day incidents, incidental acts of racial terrorism? I mean, how do you deal with coming home to a white person? Page 49. Laughing, she said, Oh, you mean when I am suffering from white people fatigue syndrome. He gets that more than I do. After we finish our laughter, we talk about the way white people who shift locations, as her companion has done, begin to see the world differently, understanding how racism works. He can see the way in which whiteness acts to terrorize without seeing himself as bad or all white people as bad and all black people as good. Repudiating us and them dichotomies does not mean that we should never speak of the ways of observing the world from the standpoint of whiteness may indeed distort perception, impede understanding of the way racism works both in the larger world as well as in the world of our intimate interaction. In the post- I just want to pause for a moment there because that that right there, that's that's something that I wish more white people understood. I wish they got it of like being able to understand how racism works without seeing yourself as bad or all white people as bad and understand that it's not a, a fucking form of just hate being fucking shot at all white people. It, it's like one of those things. That, yes, there's some horrible racist ass fucking white people out there, but that doesn't mean all white people are, you know, inherently fucking racist or hateful. And it is possible to have these conversations without playing a fucking false victimhood card of reverse racism that doesn't exist because there's a difference between personal feelings versus systemic racism 
and systemic racism is built with white supremacy being its goal and what it upholds at all fucking times. So there's, there's a point of logic there of having to understand that this applies to this fucking system that you benefit from that doesn't fucking mean, oh, you're a fucking bad person because you benefit from it. You didn't ask to benefit from it any more than anybody else asked to be oppressed by it. But you should still understand what it is and be able to go, yes, this this right here, this is a, a legitimate fucking problem. Because nobody should benefit from their pigment level. Nobody should be oppressed for their pigment level. Yeah, um, I've had really close friendships and relationships throughout my life um, with people of different perspectives and um, ethnic identities. And um, all it really takes is to see how how things play out when you are out together. Um and to see how they're treated based on certain things. Um, and I don't know, I've always been a loner, so it's been easy for me to see how people manipulate each other and how consistently some stereotypes and um, prejudices are carried out. Um, so I, I, it's surprising to me that people don't see this because I mean, if you're only friends with white people, then you have a problem. Yeah, yeah. You're shortchanging yourself. <laughs> well, and so even picking up on that, some of those tactics can help you that you would never have even known about. So that's what is uh, why I highlighted that part also. Um, being that person that has changed their perspective just by seeing it and then also um, back further on a different page when there was that quote from that woman that had... Um, dressed herself up as black. Um, I don't necessarily know how I feel about that, but uh, I do feel what she says about not being able to look at white people the same. I do have apprehensions about her wearing blackface in order to do those sociological studies, but I also see how that actually helped her grow as a person and be able to teach some of those concepts to white well, people. And it depends, um, would it be accepted or even needed at this point in time? No, because there is more of an ability to, to actually interact with each other, to move throughout different cultural areas when it comes to yeah i mean like anybody can post on the internet now basically so if you want to know what someone feels like you can ask now that too yeah um i was just thinking more of like okay because for example i i live in flint and or i'm not right now but like i'm from flint and this is a city that is mostly poor people all living that same class experience therefore there's a lot more mobility between different cultures and ethnicities of you know people being more integrated on that level and actually being able to have these conversations in person so even without the internet facet a lot of us already got exposed to that and grew up with that level of interaction and 
therefore had more understanding when it came to things like seeing how certain cops would fucking stop entire groups and not say shit to the white people there, but have plenty to say to the black or brown people there. Uh, shit like that. Um, and be able to actually observe this happening and go, holy fuck, this is a problem. What the fuck? You know? Um, but yes, absolutely. In this day and age, we have internet. You can fucking talk to people. And to, to make it very clear, look, if if you're white and curious and have fucking questions that you want to ask of somebody of a different ethnicity about their experience, tread lightly because it is not black people's fucking job to educate you. So if they choose to do so, take that for the honor that it is that they even feel comfortable talking to you about the shit. Yeah. And no, and I think Even that was an important distinction too, because this was obviously written before social media was an actual thing. Uh, right. This, this is from 96. Right. So this is 26 years old. Um, right. The most we had so been was things, I mean, at that time, I mean, I guess it sort of made more sense to dress yourself up um, to go see things because. Um, because that there was no other way to to find out for people that were prejudiced, if that was what you were trying to attempt. Well, like this book was written in the nineties, but I'm not sure when the book was written that she was quoting I think she there. Said it was in 1970. Did she? Okay. I, I must. I I'm pretty sure it was, it was several what? years prior. I think it may be 26 and 26. Um, so I think it, I think it was 70. So it would have been 26 years prior to our 26 years. And so it's like 54, 52 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two years. So, I mean, yes, a lot has changed in that. I mean, it would be different to do that in 1970 than it would be today. Right. Still awkward. Still why, but we're in, or even in 96. I mean, it, it sounds like a revolutionary thing to do in 1970, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> right because at that point in time okay and she's not the only one who did it either like yeah even, I've heard of this even in like the before. 90s uh i remember seeing um this is a vague memory so but i remember seeing a documentary a guy did where he literally went around filming how he was being treated in public as himself a white man and then dressed up as a black man and put on makeup and stuff obviously to film the difference treated in public when presumed to to be a black man and it was pretty fucking eye-opening just the horrendous difference in how he was treated in public just even interacting with people on the street um and so it for at the time that was an eye-opener and one of the few ways that sociologists could get the point across to white people of how they were happening to the world around them. But yeah, given there, there's also a world of difference between that versus like racist ass fucking dumb fuck kids on a campus going to a Halloween party dressed up in blackface because they want to be a rapper for Halloween stupid shit. 
you know, that's utter disrespect. Okay, so did you hear about that? Okay. After this, we should, because we're almost at the end of this one. But, okay, so you know uh, Julianne Huff, the Dancing with the Stars skinny blonde girl that is, or was Mormon? I don't watch that shit, but sure. Okay, well, okay, so this is when, she, I think she was on that when I was, like, still in high school. So I was still, like, living with my mom, and uh, I I don't really watch TV. So that's the only reason that I know this is because it's, like, from the early thousands, I think. Or maybe right. the late thousands. I don't remember. Um, so uh, she dressed up as blackface for Halloween. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. Um, but she dressed up as that lady from the orange, uh, from Orange is the New Black, uh, Crazy Eyes. She could have totally done that without, without, yeah. And so a lot of people said that too. And so recently she was going to host this show called The Activist. And so these people, they have to spread their activism around and they win cash prizes if they're the best activist. The show was shut down before it was aired, I, I believe. Sounds like it needed to be. Um, <laughs> how is somebody who does shit like that going to host a not show? Not only that, if you were even it's such a bad idea for a show. But even not on top of that, you put the girl that did blackface like 15 years ago. What right. are you fucking talking about? <laughs> like, God, I, think, I, I think actually, I think she was also next to Usher. Uh, I'm pretty sure he must not have known. Well, but uh, from what I've heard, Usher has done a lot of things, also. <laughs> it's like I, celebrities I don't know. They just don't have any concept of what real life consequences are, and they're judging this activist show. That just sounds all kinds of awkward and yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah, it was gnarly. It was almost like it was just for a fucking story to write about, and then it ended, and it didn't air. Like, what the fuck? Why the fuck? Oh, my God. Yeah, like, like even the liberal media was like, hey, you're, you're revealing it's too hard. Awkward. It was awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Awkward. Oh, goodness. I mean, but you would think that by now people would be figuring out like, hey, it's not okay to wear another culture or ethnicity as a costume. But we still got to remind motherfuckers every Halloween. By the way, Do you know how don't easy go it dressing is up on your head. Every Halloween. Huh? Do you know how easy it is to just be a witch every Halloween? Yeah, because I'm a witch every day and Halloween's every day for me. I just and need the extra witch. That's it. Right? That's uh, just a little extra is. witchiness. It's, Maybe it's extra witch day. Put on the hat <laughs> and grab a broom just for the fun of it. Um, and James, you've, you've missed a significant portion, but not all of it. And uh, welcome back. Well, he um, will work so he can start it over. Right. You can always hit rewind and uh watch it from the beginning <laughs> you can but, stop uh, us right from the very beginning it's okay uh we are only just getting to the end of the first essay there's still a another essay that is shorter 
And all, uh, honestly, I'm going to talk more in the second essay because it involves religion. So. And also, it does get into sexism before I thought we were going to get into sexism. So let's go with this sexism. We we, we will. And before we but fully we're dive into that, I want to highlight what John just said here that addresses the sexism preemptively here. <laughs> I mean, like, hey, he said the reality is this. Patriarchal families are not safe, constructive places for the development of identities and kinship ties Free of the crippling weight of domination. He is right. And right. Also, also, the next chapter gets into this also. Mm-hmm. It gets into this and it gets into religion and it gets to the confusion between all of them. Yeah. It's about to get real fucking interesting up in here. Yes. Let's finish this one. Take a very small break, like the last very small break. And then... Yeah, the next one is half as long, but I might have more to say. Okay, and same. Um, all right, back to the text. Colonial critic, Gayatri Spivak, that's G-A-Y-A-T-R-I, Spivak, S-P-I-V-A-K, calls for a shift in locations, clarifying the radical possibilities that surface when positionality is problematized. She explains that what we are asking for is that the hegemonic discourse and the holders of the hegemonic discourse should de-hegemonize their position and themselves learn how to occupy the subject position of the other. Generally, this process of repositioning <coughs> has the power to deconstruct practices of racism and make possible the disassociation of whiteness with terror in the black imagination. As critical intervention, it allows for the recognition that progressive white people who are anti-racist might be able to understand the way in which their cultural practice re-inscribes white supremacy without promoting paralyzing guilt or denial. Without the capacity to inspire terror, whiteness no longer signifies the right to dominate. It truly becomes a benevolent absence. Baldwin ends his essay, Stranger in the Village, with a declaration, quote, this world is white no longer, and it will never be white again, end quote. Page 50. Critically examining the association of whiteness as terror in the black imagination, deconstructing it, we both name racism's impact and help to break its hold. We decolonize our minds and our imaginations. And that is yes. the end of that essay. And a well, for one, John, I know that was from the book, but also these essays um, are put together separately. So they they go together, but they're not necessarily um, congruent like with each other. Like they're not. Um, but um, I like this because sometimes like I don't highlight certain things and then I'm listening to it when I'm here and I'm like, oh, I should have highlighted that. Um, but I like the part where she says as critical intervention allows for the recognition that progressive white people who are anti-racist might be able to understand the way in which their cultural practices 
or practice reinscribes white supremacy without promoting paralyzing guilt or denial. And then also well. the quote, this world is white no longer and it will never be white again. And we decolonize our minds and our imaginations because I mean, truly that is the way that it is. It's not that like you begin to see like so much of the accusations of critical race theory that even I've been victim to in the past, um, simply because of who's telling them to me. Like sometimes it's not even the concept itself. Sometimes it's the way that it's presented or the time that it's in, but once it's truly gone, like, and, and once you've seen the entirety of how this, the system manipulates all of us, um, there is no, it's always like people think there's an ego replacement and there's not, there's nothing. It's just that you see the way that people manipulate. And even if they're not using those tactics on you, it actually teaches you to see manipulation against yourself that you didn't see before. Um, even if you're white. So it's interesting the way that they that they word that. And it's interesting the way that she approaches this too, because she is trying to address racism, but she's also trying to talk to white people in a way that's saying, once you're out of this cage that your mind is in, that there that there isn't a replacement, there's only reality. Right. It's it's really beautiful the way that she put that because she's literally addressing it from the point of like let these false notions of like the guilt type shit because that's not serving you or anybody else. This is leading into the white guilt thing too and it's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is going to hit even harder on some of the things that she's already saying in, in yep. what we've just listened to. So. It's one of those things that I have come across so many fucking times, mostly on Facebook, with white men taking this shit so deeply personally that they're like, I'm not apologizing for being white. And it's like, literally fucking nobody is asking you to. Yeah. No, and that was that was what we got from the beginning when we started this was mm -hmm. telling us to go make babies and to shed our white guilt talking to me specifically because I'm the only one white here. So like I don't have any white guilt. I don't have any white guilt. I don't. Um I'm just aware of things, that's all. Right. You can be aware of what's happening and how this concept of whiteness lends um, privilege to those who are even fitting into that. Even if you're not white, you could just be light skinned and still be experiencing white privilege. Having guilt would have to mean that I personally victimized someone. Um, and in the, for the most part, I have not. Even when I was completely indoctrinated, I was never ever manipulative people. I was, I was weird. Uh, so, 
Um, having guilt would require that you did something to someone. And most of the time in my life, I've run from people. I've not done anything to them. Um, and that I, that's why I like the whole thing with the concept of white guilt coming up because this next one is called refusing to be a victim. And so mm -hmm. if there is no victim, then you can't hold guilt unless you have wronged someone yourself specifically. And the thing is, I have seen that facet right there be exactly what these guys are using to justify their stance of I'm not apologizing for being white when nobody's asking them to is because they're like, I haven't done anything well, wrong. Yeah. I'm not a racist. I don't treat other people badly for being of a different race. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody is even saying that like you personally well, do. Like, a, And they often come in as if we were even talking to them at all life. and we weren't. I'm like, okay, cool. But nobody right. was talking to you. Right. It's like you can observe this reality of society without feeling like it's a personal fucking attack on you, uh, especially when it's situations where it's people on the Internet where it's like, who are you? Nobody here was accusing you of anything individually because we don't fucking know you, you know. Um, it's it's one of those things where it's like we are making an observation of society and a critique of society. And this is just how shit is playing out, period. Well, and, and specifically with the internet. Themselves, whether they're part of that actively choosing to be a racist or not. Specifically with the internet, unless you know the person, we shouldn't be taking things personally anyway. Everything is only observation, right. and that's all that it is. Precisely. Precisely. Um, I'm going to take a short 30-second break. I'm going to take a short break that might be a little longer than 30 seconds. i got to hit the head. All right. Well, then we'll be I... right back, guys. <laughs> yes and the next one is shorter but we'll talk longer because it's going to be juicy she's very much more direct yes. we're ready all right all right um we'll be right back in a moment
Good timing. Remind readers. I have like three separate glasses. <laughs> Did you change glasses? What? No, uh, like uh, drinking glasses. Drinking glasses, three separate glasses. I'm just I like, I need three different liquids. Thank <laughs> me all the time. I've got a water, I've got a body armor, and I got my coffee. I mean, I do have like five or six pairs of glasses, but this is the only one I wear right now because they're the best. I was going to say, like, it didn't look like you changed glasses, but I wasn't sure what glasses you were referring to. Oh, yeah. No. I wish these were more visible. Yeah. Stay hydrated. Hi, Sarah. I miss them. You want to say hi to Aunt Chelsea? Hi. I miss you. She's not even looking. She's like, I don't know what screens are. <laughs> She's like, I just want boops and hugs. <laughs> Sarah. 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 <laughs> now she's looking your way like, what? <laughs> it's your best friend forever. She's such a sweet baby. Her mama's over here sleeping. They've been really good. Her mom likes me better anyway. That's what she said. Bye. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they both adore you. Doom adores everything more than Sarah. Fair. Fair point. Sarah will get excited about other people, other dogs, and shiny stuff, but none of them Mom. ever get her as like. And as even when dogs don't like men, they usually still like Kyle. <laughs> Just because yeah. he's like so like calm and soft spoken, like right, does not like act like. Uh, and so she was just like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> she well, did, she did. I, no, I remember she did calm down, though, uh, that one night at the bar. Yeah. After like after she months. actually started hanging out and. Right. And all the reacting. boys were loving on her just as much as the girls were and everyone in between, huh? Yeah. I think she's getting over her sexism because. Uh, well, that you, that whole you probably went out with me more than you usually do, so it's like mm -hmm. it's harder for her to switch gears too, just because you're not always going to a bar, or I'm just like much more social than I would guess most online internet people are. So, All right, and well, with her, it was it was a lack of you know her socialization too, because. There's seldom few places that I am able to like take them in public. Um, you know, like that was a rare thing for the bar to be dog friendly and okay, be able yeah. to bring them.
come in like, all right, come hang out, you yeah. know? And I, I think that experience of being able to do that a few times through those couple of weeks, like really made a, a an impact on her psyche because she has stopped just reacting like that off the bat to men. And I'm like, I'm proud of you. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got to spend a few weeks doing that then. Me too. It, it really helped her warm up and get more comfortable being around a lot of people. And I dig that. Cause like she's used to seeing friends at their homes and stuff like that. But that was a whole different experience for her to have a whole bar full of people wanting to love on her. <laughs> She's like, I'm you're, such ta you're talking about me and I can hear it. Right. She's like, I'm going to boop you with my weight. Huh. And then just snuggle in. She's so sweet. So you're the real star of the show, huh? Mm-hmm. She always makes an entrance. Like, Mom, you've been doing stuff and talking to other people for a while now. Pay attention to me. Yeah, I'm glad Kyle had to work. I hate that he has to work, but um, it helps when this is happening. Yeah. He's like, oh, why does it take so long? I'm like, because it's just two people reading a book. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there's discussion to be had, too. And so far, every chapter has taken at least an hour, if not more, for even, like, the audio, you yeah. know. This one's going to take, this one might take longer, even there. I mean, it might take just as long simply because we'll be talking more. Right. I guess we should just be prepared for these book club pieces to all be three-hour tours i'm not i'm not having a problem with that i'm usually prepared right um i noticed <laughs> with highlighted notes and all i well, love it yeah i don't like to yeah especially because i take substances <laughs> i'm a functioning substance taker of legal substances Yes, same. I I was smoking some of those substances a moment ago and will be again. I was thinking last night after that whole traumatic episode of my knee that uh, my medical card expires in August. Ow, ow, ow. ow. So that's going to yes. suck. And I have not renewed it before. But yeah. It should be relatively easy to renew, especially in comparison to even the first filing for it, because you're already approved. They just have to, like, send you a copy of new paperwork. I'll probably do it in June or something, but yeah. I don't know. They um, might process it quicker if you do it before it expires. Yeah, that's just still a couple it. months. Okay. I use the birthday oh, money from my family to get my drug card. <laughs> um, I'm ready when you are. <laughs> That's real solidarity right there. <laughs> Fucking A. All right. Let me pull that window back up. And here we are. Uh
Uh, this is the essay, Refusing Dumb Accountability and Responsibility. We are picking back up here at page 51, if you are reading along in the text, which makes me wonder why where this audio is paused at says page 48. But I guess we'll find out. End of essay four. Page 51. Okay. Essay five. Refusing to be a victim. Accountability and responsibility. When Feminist Theory from Margin to Center was published in 1984, I urged women engaged in the feminist movement and the feminist movement to be aware to beware of embracing a mantle of victimization in our quest to draw public attention to the need to end sexism and sexist exploitation and oppression critiquing a vision of sisterhood rooted in shared victimization. I encouraged women to bond on the basis of political solidarity. It seemed ironic to me that white women who talked the most about being victims, as I wrote, then were more privileged and powerful than the vast majority of women in our society. And if shared victimhood was the reason to be feminist, then women who were empowered, who were not victims, would not embrace feminism. My repudiation of the victim identity emerged out of my awareness of the way in which thinking of oneself as a victim could be disempowering and disenabling. Stop. Coming to womanhood in the segregated South. I had Can you stop? Okay. Um... That has been my experience online, especially. Um, I started getting online when I was like 19 or 20 with the whole Tumblr thing. And I kind of did the same. I didn't do podcasts at the time, but uh, I started arguing my opinions coming out of Christianity um, and being Republican. And they were wrong. Uh <laughs> I was like very much still like pro-life and um, libertarian and all that and thought that feminism could fit in with that. Or I did not think that feminism could fit in with a lot simply because uh, even at first falling out of patriarchal thinking, you still tend to defend it. Um, particularly in regard to when you're that age and thinking that you may still have children. Um, and that was the whole thing is that I was living until I was 22, not being a victim of anything. Um, and while this is starting out, we're talking about refusing to be a victim, but I think that you can only refuse to be a victim after you have already been one. Um, and so before that, I did not relate with what women were talking about with feminism because I was 19 or 20 and I had never really seen the world and I never really knew what I was talking about, whether that be in, in regards to sex or race. Um, and so I really didn't feel any reason to be feminist. Uh, and so that's exactly what she's saying. Um, and... You know, I think I, I definitely agree that that's what keeps a lot of women from feminism, especially if they feel empowered enough, they feel like they can't relate.
if they've not if they've not gone through struggle to get where they are then they're not going to be, they're not going to agree with you they're not going to align with you and so that is also a class thing because a lot of well-off feminists have never been victimized right and this this also comes down to for those of us who have experienced abuse understanding the difference between a victim and a survivor and that difference is that fucking empowerment um you know like i have been on the receiving end of patriarchal abuse i have been physically assaulted by men i dated things like that but i don't see myself as a fucking victim and never have and to be fair even the people who witnessed it would not see me as a victim either for one reason because um even in those moments uh, that feeling of empowerment kicks the fuck in when somebody swings on you even if it is the person that you are with and especially if it's the person you are with swinging back feels really fucking good however it may be that you can swing back whether it be physically or with your words of not letting them fucking defeat you mentally and emotionally in those fucking moments because that's what they really seek in that power play right there they they want to feel like they intimidated you and harmed you and fuck that why give them the satisfaction it's it's not a victimhood it's survival you know and that is something that definitely does need to be stated even in this day and age when we discuss these things that we have experienced um even the stuff that isn't as crude as, you know, the physical violence, there's still mental and emotional violence that comes from patriarchal shit that a lot of people might not even realize where they were on the receiving end of that and actually are survivors, even if they have never felt that whole relation with, you know, being a, a victim or you know, targeted by a certain thing, oftentimes they're not even aware of it because they were so conditioned to that just being the norm, you know? So fuck the whole victimhood thing. No, it's called survival, <laughs> you know? She'll get more into the victimhood for sure. Yeah. But it, yeah, it, that's it, all it, I wanted to say that while she was still only talking about the feminist movement and not just race, I was right. there. Yeah, so... <laughs> right. All right. I'm again here. Never heard black women talk about themselves as victims facing hardship, the ravages of economic lack and deprivation, the cruel injustice of racial apartheid. I lived in a world where women gain strength by sharing knowledge and resources, not by bonding on the basis of being victims. Page 52. Despite the incredible pain of living in racial apartheid, southern um, racial apartheid, southern black people did not speak about ourselves as victims, even when we were downtrodden. We identified ourselves more by the experience of resistance and triumph than by the nature of our victimization. It was a given that life was hard, that there was suffering. It was facing that suffering with grace and dignity that one experienced transformation. 
during civil rights struggle when we joined hands to sing we shall overcome we were empowered by a vision of fulfillment of victory much of the awareness that i brought to feminist struggle about the danger of identifying with victimhood was knowledge that came from the oppositional life practices of black folks in the segregated south when i cautioned women involved in feminist movement to beware of embracing a victim identity i was confident that black people active in liberation struggle already possessed this awareness and yet by the end of the 80s black folks were more and more talking about victimhood claiming a victim identity suddenly individual black critics were raising a public voice cautioning black folks about the danger of embracing victimhood Mm -hmm. One such was Shelby Steele. His essays, The Content of Our Character, were published with a cover heading that stated he was presenting a new vision of race in America. This vision was simple. It called for a repudiation of the rhetoric of victimhood. Most black Americans were in agreement with Steele's assertion that to claim victimhood in an absolutist way was dangerously disempowering. However, his demand that we repudiate a victim identity was undermined by his insistence that racist aggression was no longer a threat to the well-being of black folks. Which is also paralleled with people falsely thinking that patriarchy is no longer a threat to the well-being of women and non-men simply because, you know, they like to point out, oh, well, women can vote and women can work now. Guess what? That doesn't fucking change that you know it that is an undermining thing right there to pretend like these influences are no longer existing and causing harm they certainly are and well, once and again just, we can refer back to our troll from it's last this week. ridiculous notion that we can just get rid of things because they're not popular anymore um right i mean that's coming from a very again very religious background where i was sheltered completely um and was fed bullshit versions of history and politics these things do not go away they never right. do. they are taught generation to generation I mean, some of them are thousands of years old so i don't know why everybody thinks that we can just get rid of them tomorrow because anthropology sociology any form of education that you take proves that this is not fucking true and then it shouldn't be true. I mean, even biology, it doesn't make any sense. We are always improving upon what has already existed. So there's no way to get rid of what has already existed. And people just act like you can put it out of your mind and that it doesn't exist anymore. And right. it's infuriating sometimes um, right. because it just, it lacks all sense. It lacks, all, it, it lacks all intuition as well as sense. It lacks yes. everything. There is a world of difference from mentally and emotionally releasing yourself from those fucking chains because you have learned more and actually grown as a person and woke the fuck up to certain facets of reality and went, oh shit and had an epiphany versus the entirety of society having that fucking epiphany. And we are not at that point yet. As many individuals as we have had wake up and go, wait a minute, this is fucked. 
it's not everyone yet. We're not there yet. And even when we are there, if we are ever able to get there and stop this fucking generational bullshit of people being taught to be racist and sexist, even if we ever do achieve that point, we cannot forget the struggle to get there. We cannot forget how much harm those things caused because if we forget what already fucking happened, guess what? It comes back to that, that nice quote of, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to fucking repeat it. Because who knows, if you don't teach people how harmful these ideologies were, then somebody in the future might go, wait a minute, this sounds like a good idea. We should try this bullshit. You, you have to retain that memory, okay? That's, that's why we still have to fucking deal with motherfuckers that deny that the Holocaust happened. And it's like, there's photos, um, you know? Uh, like, for, for fuck's sake, we can't have that type of fucking right to refuse to acknowledge it in order to, I don't know, mentally protect themselves from having to learn. Maybe the cognitive dissonance is too fucking much. That's what we're up against here on all of those levels. H53. This line of argument seemed to be opportunistically directed at white readers. It was such an utterly unsubstantiated claim. Practically all African American experience, some African Americans experience some degree of racist harassment in the society, however relative, on a daily basis. Steele's will to deny this reality was linked to his refusal to call attention to the ways white Americans are responsible for perpetuating and maintaining white supremacy. Yep. By not calling attention to white accountability, that. he implied that black folks must assume sole responsibility for the task of ending racism, of repudiating the victim identity. This and it's another moment to point out that fucking racism is not a problem for black and indigenous and other people of color to solve. Because they're not well, the ones I doing it. It is a white people problem. I think that specifically the the person that she is calling out, Steele, um, that she is calling out his, uh, and honestly, I, I don't think she ever mentions Malcolm X in this, um, but she is calling out his trust in white people to give him, it's like, Hey guys, let up, like, don't fucking harass them too hard. They're starting to give us some shit and everything's going to be fine now because they're deciding that racism doesn't matter to them anymore. When in reality, they're just trying to cover it in different ways so that it can still carry on. And they say that that's not what it is. And that is Malcolm X's exact point when he says that you cannot ask anybody for your freedom. Mm-hmm. That that and so to to continue to ignore racism is to pretend like you have been given freedom when in reality uh black people really haven't been um 
specifically with Run the Jewels, there is the song that uh, says that the 13th Amendment was a, abolish slavery, but in reality, that's not the case. Not for really anybody, but specifically not for black people either, because uh, they're still discriminated against daily. So none of it actually means anything. And specifically with how that applied, like um, it is still the majority enslavement of black people to this fucking day, because the 13th Amendment provided for yeah we're gonna get rid of personal ownership of people but we're gonna be okay with physical labor slavery for prisoners and here you go here is a fucking um prison system and legal system that overwhelmingly affect the black and indigenous communities more so than any fucking body else so when we have a system built like that, that's like, okay, we're just going to do this a little more discreetly, give people something to pretend to be celebrating every year. Like, Hey, Hey, it's the day that slavery ended. No, it's the day that slavery changed. Yeah. And instead of you being personal property of another person, now you get sent through the prison system and put on a chain gang. still slavery seemed ironic given the reality that it was precisely the collective white repudiation of militant black resistance to racism that lay the groundwork for an emphasis on victimhood the word victim does not appear in the vast majority of resistance writing from the civil rights era yet as early as 65, Martin Luther King Jr. was sharing the insight that the demand for a realization of equality was not being heard by whites. In Where Do We Go From Here, King identified a growing feeling of disempowerment signaled by white backlash against the gains of the civil rights movement. Quote, the Negroes of America had taken the president, the press, and the pulpit at their word when they spoke in broad terms of freedom and justice. But the absence of brutality and unregenerate evil is not the presence of justice. To stay murder is not the same thing as to ordain brotherhood. The word was broken, and the free-running expectations of the Negro to the stone walls of white resistance it was felt cheated especially in the north when many whites felt that the negroes had gained so much it was virtually impudent and greedy to ask for more so soon end quote page 54 militant resistance to white supremacy frightened white americans even those liberals and radicals who were committed to the struggle to an end racial discrimination. There was a great difference between a civil rights struggle that worked primarily to end discrimination and radical commitment to black self-determination. Ironically, many whites who had struggled side by side with black folks responded positively to images of black victimization. Many whites testified that they looked upon the suffering of black people in a segregated South and were moved to work for change. The image of blacks as victims 
at an accepted place in the consciousness was the image of black folks as equals, as self-determining that had no place, that could evoke no sympathetic response. In complicity with the nation state, all white Americans responded to black militancy by passively accepting the disruption of militant black organizations and the slaughter of black leaders. And this Stop. is something we have discussed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like today we're stopping at the same time. Right. Uh, between the discussion on um, the Black Panther Party being straight up demonized. Why? Because they were militant and called for self-determination. They didn't want just equality. They wanted fucking equity and still do. And this is why Fred Hampton was murdered. This is why so many Black leaders were fucking killed. MLK too and Malcolm X. Like this this, this right is why here. white people in the United States take sides all of the time because, and it doesn't matter this time. It's not, it's not necessarily racial because it's what they mostly perceive to be white, but they like to take sides on things and to feel it's the same thing as what we were talking about last time with this last essay is that they want themselves to be perceived in a particular way and they think that other people don't perceive them outside of the way that they are and that's just not fucking true and that is the case in this also is that they always think that they have to pick the side of the good guy or the bad guy and that whenever they pick the side of the good guy especially if it's a racial minority they feel like they are the saviors of these people yeah. And it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be that they are actually saving these people anymore. They can go there mentally without ever doing anything. They can go there mentally and feel as though that they are the saviors of the world and they've done fucking nothing. Right. It's just their savior complex. It's their fucking ego. Yep, we've had that discussion about a few folks lately. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a fucking problem. That is not the way to be an ally. <laughs> Don't know how else to say that, but leave the savior complex the fuck at home. Matter of fact, like throw it in the trash, flush it down the toilet something there's no real use for it that's not the way to be an ally nobody wants to no an ally stands by wait i support sorry i'm reading this comment oh i couldn't even see it because the uh audio window is there no and um actually what's funny is that we'll we'll be getting into that with that, this, that with this exact essay Yep, absolutely. Um, I don't agree with that. Um, but we will be getting into that with this exact essay. She will call this out. She she actually draws some parallels between white and black feminism. Okay, fair. Um, I mean, if you don't want to address John's comment right now, it will come to it. 
I just wanted to point that out because that was a big factor because, okay, look at um, in the I just, I just don't agree. 70s, um, Red Scare propaganda was still really huge. And so when it came to the targeting of like the Black Panther Party specifically, um, it wasn't just because they were Black and militant and calling for self-determination. One factor of that was that they were Maoists. So um, that made them an even bigger threat because of the potential, especially with the Rainbow Coalition, to unite people across racial lines under a class movement that would overthrow capitalism and the, the fucking alphabet men shit their pants. I think, though, that if they had not been Black, that they would have been less likely yes absolutely that's why i don't agree with it okay and that's correct i'm just saying this is a facet but yeah the fact that they were well black and that facet sealed their death warrant instead of just an arrest warrant that con that concept does not necessarily contradict what i'm saying is coming up this is why i read before i come on here my glasses are totally it's so hard to clean things um yeah. no okay but i i we can definitely carry this on once we get there um because it does bring up a point of assassinations and general public acceptance of certain things over others um and it shows It's just very complex. I think we should figure we should talk about this after we get to that point. After this um, section, because she's that, that is on the end of fifty-five, so we're almost there anyway. We're almost there. Yeah, she's just now breaking into this subject area with that last line of the last paragraph. <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that says in complicit in complicity. With the nation state, all white Americans responded to black militancy by passively accepting the disruption of militant black organizations and the slaughter of black leaders. And that's because they weren't as palatable. Okay, like people didn't even realize when MLK was killed that it was a fucking alphabet well, see, man hit. Um, things like that, but they, they found him palatable with his messages of, you know, love, peace, and unity, but the moment that he started actually arming himself and, and telling the Black community, no, you do need to protect yourself, and maybe maybe I shouldn't have been so pacifist, that's when the fucking feds took his ass out, but the, they were completely apathetic to the militant black leaders that had always been militant being taken out. Let's get into who can talk about this. Okay. All right. I'm going to hit play and let bell hooks tell you. <laughs> End of talk two. Reading resumes on page 54. To continue, turn the cassette over and change <laughs> the track selector switch. 
page 55, males who are convinced that patriarchy <coughs> should have allowed them to gain greater rights than white women were the most angered by the way the struggle for women's liberation was actually most successful when the focus was on gaining greater access to mainstream, traditionally white, male-dominated that skipped a whole fucking yes, section. Hang on. I will read it. Um, I will read to the. I'll, I'll read that entire paragraph. Okay. And then we can just re-listen to it. Okay. Because that was an important paragraph, and I literally had that entire long ass paragraph highlighted. So. Right. Like, why did they say flip the <laughs> no, tape over? And now we're going to skip a very note. important paragraph. I have no, I have that entire fucking paragraph highlighted and it is completely not there. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. Read away. Okay. Because this is important. Yeah, it totally is. Okay. Um, in the wake of militant calls for black self-determination, privileged class white women, many of whom had been active in civil rights struggle, began to organize women's liberation movement movement. Drawing on the rhetoric of black freedom struggle, these groups of women, not all of whom were white and privileged, found that it was useful to embrace a victim identity. Without witnessing the assassination of any of the leaders of feminist movement, without any police brutality, without a mass movement for social justice, white women were able to collectively redress wrongs enacted by a system of gender discrimination. The rhetoric of, the rhetoric of victimhood worked for white women, in the wake of feminist movement, white women were suddenly receiving gains in the workforce. They were primary recipients of rewards from affirmative action. By the 80s, white women had made greater gains in the short space of 10 years than black women and men had made over decades of struggle. Those black males who were convinced that patriarchy should have allowed them to gain greater rights than white women were the most angered by the way the struggle for women's liberation was actually most successful when the focus on gaining greater access to mainstream traditionally white male dominated spheres of power. This rage did not keep black males from deploying a similar rhetoric in the competition for favors and reparations from the white male power structure. White women active in contemporary feminist movement often behaved as did their 19th century counterparts who in struggling for the vote were were quite willing to evoke white supremacy as the structure of bonding that should lead white men to give them rights and privileges before extending them to black males. That. That. It gets real gross. It gets real gross in there. Oh, I forgot to pop that back down. Uh, I see there's more comments. Let's check these real quick. Um, so basically, basically, she's saying that um, white women were enable were able to lead the feminist movement during the civil rights movement, and to push their issues faster than any racial issue or even political issue at all. And it was felt that if Honestly, I feel like it's weird to say this. Um, the gender equity kind of quelled every complaint um, 
that had existed beforehand. And it's the only one that generally holds any weight in any serious context. Because otherwise people try it. I mean, and even then people still downplay sexual assault, especially in the music scene or whatever scene, especially if it's not professional. Um, but we, at we the same time. Of, so how were you dressed? Huh? We still get to hear shit of, so how were you dressed? As if that. Yeah. So I'm not saying that it's better. Uh, I'm just saying that. Um, as far as advancing the stuff, I mean, it's still sort of the same thing that she's talking about with race. In a way, the structure of it is the same. The, um, the consequences aren't necessarily but it's this, uh, you bring the women into the workforce and then, and then women are just harassed in the workforce and then women are just assaulted in the workforce. And that doesn't happen as much necessarily, but like, it's this whole thing of bringing to light representation without um, making any reparations or changes uh, to prevent the past wrongs from happening again. Um, and it's easier to do it with women because uh, a white man will probably respect a white woman more than he would respect someone else. Um, and sometimes even if he doesn't intend to try to sleep with her, but not always. Right. I mean, this is, this is only in the context, honestly, of what is most acceptable to the ones in power. And that does not mean white men, like in general, but like when we're talking in terms of power, power. And we're, when we're talking in terms of power and who can change legislation and who can change the mindsets of these things, it is white men, mostly. And even if they're not white, they more than likely have been placed by white people to still have a white mindset. Um, so right. they're not decolonized at all. And so, um, and I think that's no, it's, it, it, it's really easy to tokenize those who have not been decolonized. Yeah. And still have them working for the white supremacist agenda. So like you said, it, it's the representation without any real change. Yeah. That's um, that so is the core of the problem. So we can start that again and get it to where it was. Yeah, this Luckily, is gonna, there's not too many pages left, so it shouldn't do that again. Um, for some reason, she had picked up at the first sentence on page 55, so it is going to read through for that paragraph again, but that's okay because there can't be too much emphasis on this bullshit. There's a power. This race did not keep black males from deploying a similar rhetoric in the competition for favors and reparations from the white male power structure. White women, active in contemporary feminist movement, often behave as did their 19th century counterparts, who, when struggling for the vote, were quite willing to evoke white supremacy as the structure of bonding that should lead white men to give them rights and privileges before extending them to black males. 
When the rare white woman, a feminist of the early 70s, wrote about racial hierarchy, she usually did so to draw attention to her closeness to the white male power structure, to show the way she had been wronged. In 1970, Shula Firestone published The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution, this is in some which dumb he argued that racism is sexism extended, that racism is a sexual phenomenon. Drawing on Freudian paradigms, Firestone, like other white women during this time, saw race relations solely in terms of hierarchical relations within the white nuclear family. Firestone unabashedly wrote, quote, The white man is father, the woman, wife, and mother, her status dependent on his. The blacks, like children, are his property, their physical differentiation branding them the subservient class, the same way that children form so easily a distinguishable servile class vis-a-vis -vis adults. This power hierarchy created the psychology of racism, just as, in the nuclear family, it creates the psychology of sexism. Quote. Page 56. The flaw far You look like you want to say something. I do, but <laughs> I have this whole next paragraph also highlighted, so it goes into... But I do, because that was... Okay, I will pause it at the end of this paragraph. Though. Okay. Stone's analysis was her refusal to see the way in which patriarchal thinking mediates racism to disrupt the model she outlines. Since at the time of her writing, black folks were indeed no longer property of white men, but rather dependents, it would have been more accurate to see white women and black men as siblings engaged in a rivalry for the attention of the father, to consider the absence of the mother and patriarchal formations of power hierarchy. Certainly, black male and white female responses to the early stages of contemporary feminism made it clear that they saw themselves as rivals, competing to be included within the white male power structure. Black women were indeed outside the loop. Um, you look like you are still preparing your thoughts. I don't even. So I will take a moment to point out that this is also reminiscent of the things that Emma Goldman had to say on feminism and why she literally called out that movement for women to get the vote. She had said, Why would women want to be equally oppressed as the men? Because your vote doesn't fucking matter, anyways, you know, basically. But there, there was such an enormous amount of critique that she had for the feminist movement. And it's because of that right there that um, not only would it not make a difference because you are still class-wise in a, a fucking hierarchical paradigm, but it also left out people of color. She was a Jewish woman. So she got to see both the racism and the sexism colliding there and was pretty prophetic in what she had to say. I just think that it's ridiculous that a woman 
can look at black people as if they are the children of the white father regardless of their age of things that makes this obviously not an age thing obviously not a father thing this makes this thing of original sin and lightness and darkness as in the last essay um on top of that she still voluntarily puts herself under the man as a white woman begging him and um since when did asking your oppressors to stop oppressing i don't want to shit on women that do this but this is why i completely agree with it is that i i've been close a couple times to making myself um submissive to someone mentally speaking uh, there are different ways to be submissive and i'm not completely condemning submission here but mentally speaking i do not do it and this is why I don't because you just don't give anybody any right to talk over you or to control what you're thinking. And honestly, I mean, that is why she's still letting white men control the way that she thinks, thinking that she is the mother. I mean, honestly, she's placed herself as the mother of minorities. Yeah. So she still placed herself she's in a hierarchy to- over minorities simply because they're not white. So rather than destroying that, um, and on, on top, I mean, she has, she has no power herself. She is allowing the power structure to still exist. Exactly. She's disempowering herself by going, can't I be on the second rung of this hierarchy instead of going, wait a minute, we need to destroy this, which is why Currently, women are going, fuck that, destroy the patriarchy. Destroy it all together. Because it's not acceptable to well, have this fucking hierarchy. And it's not easy to do either. I family that is exactly like this. And while I'm lucky enough to have found someone to be with that is awesome, uh, at the same time, it really sucks to leave your entire family because they're like this. They're exactly what's being described right now. Um, This also speaks to a wider problem on the sociological level, this infantilization of the black community, you know, that, that is literally what that woman was doing in Firestone, you know, in that essay that Bell's referring to here is infantilizing them. Uh, And that feeds back into that whole victimhood thing instead of empowerment. One more reason why this whole shit needs to be destroyed. Fuck these hierarchies. Are we ready to go again? Indeed. Indeed. Just when black women active in feminist movement, like myself, 
we're demanding that there be a revisioning of feminist theory and practice that would repudiate the centrality of a focus on victimization. Black males were appropriating the rhetoric of victimization to turn the spotlight back on themselves. Careful reading of the literature of black civil rights and black power struggle makes it clear that the emphasis in those movements was solidly on the gaining of rights and privileges for men, just as the early literature of feminist movement focused exclusively on calling attention to the needs of white women. To some extent, the white-dominated women's movement shifted the public gaze away from black men and focused it on individual white women who wanted equality with men of their class. Jockeying for white male attention, black male leaders emphasized victimization, particularly the pain they suffered as a result of white racist aggression. Like their white female counterparts, they deployed a rhetoric of victimization because it was less threatening to white males to name white males as all-powerful victimizers was to pay homage to their power, to see them as possessing the cure for all that ails. Page 57. Yep. As the rhetoric of victimization became more... What's up? Um, so I had a very not thought out thought about this, um, but the, like their white female counterparts, they deployed a rhetoric of victimization because it was less threatening to white males. To name white males as all powerful victimizers was to pay homage to their power, to see them as possessing the cure for all that ails. Um... I feel as though this has something to do with white males always thinking that they are the ones being attacked whenever we're talking about this. Um, and it's because they're given, they're being given too much power as a collective in our minds. Um, only, um, only on the level of a man trying to accept this concept. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that men should take offense to these things, but like what she just said there seems to be the core of why they think that that they are being targeted. Um and it seems to maybe be an easy talking point to go to, to just blame white males without necessarily getting into why or how, even if it might be accurate. Um, but it does speak to the mentality of the ones who are in power and the ones who wish that they had certain power. No, and I can like agree. Less, and and, and a misogynist that wishes he had power over women to make them stay at home in the kitchen, not work, and just make babies and fucking wash his undies. Yes, like our soul from last time. Yes. But, no, yes. But, I mean, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that I don't also make white dude jokes because I do. Um right. but at the same time, it, it can sometimes, in a way, be an oversimplified kind of... I mean, on like, you've seen issues with me being called um, or being accused of saying something that I'm not 
in a complex situation simply because yes. of something that really was not happening. Um, and I don't want to get into that because I don't care. But uh, I mean, I cared at the time, but I don't want to rehash it. But like, it seems to me that sometimes these stereotypes are also used to divide us still also like I mean, I, I, I mean, we talk we talk to a lot of white dudes, and usually they're fine, except for the one recent one. But uh, right, most you know what I mean. So it's like it's like you, you have friends, and sometimes um, they might not be on the same level as you, and they might not understand that they're not being targeted. Um, and that's what I really want to. That's what I felt really was relevant to addressing that that um i don't want to placate them but at the same time i think it's hard for people to get there sometimes um i think an important facet of what she's pointing out there too is that underlying usually unspoken concept of like having to ask the white men for your rights as if they were privileges to be given by them, which on a sociological level, we are absolutely dealing with when you are almost completely fucking white government. Old white. Government. You know, that it's a problem. It's a problem. It's not just a lack of representation. It's it's even those individuals who are in those seats playing off of that. Like, yes, I am the one who possesses the cure for your ails and I'm withholding them. Because you imbibed me with this power when you fucking voted me into office. And yep, and there's another facet. James said, old rich white guy government. No, I agree with the old rich white guy government. I was not talking about anybody in particular. And I do not like to bring that other man up unless it's absolutely necessary. Right. But yeah. our, I said that when we were discussing the troll. And um, I would oh, not be surprised. I meant, I meant the last president. I wasn't talking about. Um, you know, James said the comment about that last president while we were oh, discussing. Oh, I thought, no, I think that he said it while I was about talking it. about uh, not blaming particular white men or also blaming particular white men. <laughs> um, I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, but this isn't really, no, I mean, I was thinking more on a personal level. Uh, generally speaking, I, I don't think about things politically, actually. Um, as, as weird as that sounds for what we're doing, I don't really think about things politically. I think about things right. in the way that we interact with each other personally. Um, and I take offense to the way that people treat me personally. Um, and I think that looking at personal interaction is uh, more of a pulse to take for how society is going uh, than looking at the television. So I don't really care about uh, the latest news update or 
anything like that. I care about how how people are acting right now in my vicinity. Right. And in, in general, I, I care more about these personal interactions between individuals, regardless of where they're at, than I that's you but as far as like on tv or any of that bullshit like yeah we're all aware i care about global issues but also like as far as we're talking about sexism racism and imperialism i am more than likely most of the time listening to the ideas of people around me and evaluating those rather than trying to look at a politician that I don't care about and that has no idea about what my life is like or what the people that I know's life are like. Right. Um, you know, not to say that it's not a problem when they have the influence that they have on. And I'm also not saying don't watch it. I watched the state of the union last night. It was absolutely disgusting. Yes, it was. So. Um, you were not the only one wanting to vomit through that. Yeah, I know. I was there while we were all vomiting together. Yeah. It was a community vomit party. You should have been there. Right. Right. We all <laughs> apparently felt like grossing ourselves out together watching that shit show. Just to be able to discuss that on tomorrow's current event stream. And we all needed a fucking puke bag gross it's gross super gross anyway maybe uh daddy biden can send us some pills to keep us from puking <laughs> oh my god we got the pills all the pills motherfucker <sighs> at least abortions are safe that's the only good positive thing that i got out of that right he's like hello i'm daddy biden you can get an abortion right <laughs> And I'm like, cool, because I'm yeah. never bringing kids into this goddamn world. Fuck you. Uh, so. <laughs> but yet there's so many of the previous administration's fucking legislation facets that get all Uncle Joe's like, we're good with that. We're going to keep it. The one fucking thing that he said that was true during his campaign was when he had a dinner with his campaign donors and told them nothing will fundamentally change. Bitches ain't shit but tricks and hoes. That was uh, Biden's new rap. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, God, that man. It's so frustrating. Uh, well, so I mean, I I took more offense to the constant standing ovations, honestly. That's... Yeah. Oh my God! How many times can I stand up for this man? I don't have a penis, but I'm standing up all the time. Right. On both bad. sides of the aisle. Okay, but we can talk about this tomorrow. Yeah, we can. <laughs> all right, back to the fucking book. Back to the fucking book. See, see your your El Presidente on a Ranjado. I'm oh, sorry. Shit, I brought up. For a moment. I brought up the penis. It's no, my own fault. I, okay. Not you. I was wagging my finger at James. Um, <laughs> I, I was wagging my finger at the chat overlay over here. <laughs> Wait, what did you do? Oh, good. yeah, that's his he, fault. He mentioned El Presidente on Aranjado and sent us on, on that fucked vomitous journey. I'm All right. Okay. Anyway, we'll save, we'll anyway. save the, the United States political analysis for the 
current events tomorrow. Back to the book. <laughs> book. Commonplace. It appeared to be an accurate description of the state of black America after the powerful forces of white supremacy had suppressed militant resistance. Despair and feelings of hopelessness are central to the formation of a psychology of victimization. The assassination of revolutionary black male political leaders naturally created a climate of loss and chaos that was ripe for the growth of feelings of disempowerment. Suddenly, a spirit of resistance that had been grounded in an oppositional belief that white power was limited, that it could be challenged and transformed, had dissipated. In its place was a rhetoric that represented the that structure as all-powerful, unchanging. The black church has always been a place in the United States where African Americans have learned oppositional ways of thinking that enhance our capacity to survive and flourish. Black liberation theology always intervened in any tendency to elevate humans to the status of all-powerful beings. This insistence on the limitations of humans was crucial for black people suffering at the hands of white oppressors and or exploiters. The assumption that the power was limited, subject to forces beyond control, even a belief in the miraculous, was an empowering worldview running counter to the teachings of white colonizing forces. After this sentence. As religion becomes less central to the lives of contemporary African Americans, particularly to youth. Those forms of opposition thinking are not taught. It sounded like you said pause at the end of the sentence. Well, I really meant the next sentence, but it's fine. Um, the next sentence. Okay, so the whole, the whole part there is going to tie into the last part of the last paragraph. As religion becomes less central to the lives of contemporary African Americans, particularly, particularly to youth, those forms of oppositional thinking are not taught. Without, alter without alternative belief systems, black folks embrace the values of the existing system, which daily reinforce learned helplessness. And yep. actually, one second, because I actually shared this in Third Eye. And this is, I didn't even think of this until I just read that. And now I'm like, I shared this in third eye from Carol P. Christ with the goddess religion stuff, which would normally not be relevant and I wouldn't read it in, but um, I think I can search it and find it. Um, but my initial thoughts on it specifically, um, are that... It's weird to me. I understand the cultural significance of black churches being a place of uh, political organization. Um, but the falling out from religion itself um, is not purely racial. Um, and so my thing with that is, is that knowing what I know about Christianity going to the white supremacist Christian school. So I, I went to Christian Heritage Academy. It was specifically founded in the 70s or 60s. I think it was the 70s. It was a direct response 
to desegregation. It was a private school so that they could not have black people in it. Um, and now they deny they deny that they started from that. And so my thing is that what she's saying as far as suddenly a spirit of resistance that had been grounded in an oppositional belief that white power was limited, that it could be challenged and transformed, had dissipated. In its place was a rhetoric that represented that structure as all-powerful, unchanging. That is white manifest destiny Christianity that she is describing and from yep. what I believe that from reading the last book that I read of hers five or six years ago, I think that she stayed a Christian throughout her life. And while I understand the the historical and political concept of black churches, I also do not understand the clinging to a white God. Um, yeah. And I don't yeah. understand the clinging to a God that you were forcibly made to believe in. Um, and One that justified your enslavement. Literally. Read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and come back and, you know, <laughs> let's discuss it. Because uh, that that's a huge facet of what the fuck in that book where it literally justifies enslaving other people. And I want, oh, I found the excerpt. Okay. So this is weird because I did not think of this when I highlighted this. But so when she says, as religion became less central to the lives of contemporary African-Americans, particularly to youth, those forms of oppositional thinking are not taught. Without alternative beliefs, belief systems, black folks embrace the values of the existing system which daily reinforce learned helplessness. As far as what Carol P. Christ says, it says, because religion has such a compelling hold on the deep psyches of so many people, feminists cannot afford to leave it in the hands of the fathers. Even people who no longer believe in God or participate in the institutional structure of patriarchal religion still may not be free of the power of the symbolism of God the Father. A symbol's effect does not depend on rational assent, for a symbol also functions on levels of the psyche other than the rational. Religion fulfills deep psychic needs by providing symbols and rituals that enable people to cope with crisis situations in human life, death, evil, and suffering, and to pass through life's important transitions, birth, sexuality, and death. Even people who consider themselves completely secularized will often find themselves sitting in a church or a synagogue when a friend or relative gets married or when a parent or friend has died. The symbols associated with these important rituals cannot fail to affect the deep or unconscious structures of the mind of even a person who has rejected these symbolisms on a conscious level, especially if a person is under stress. The reason for the con continuing effects of religious symbols is that the mind abhors a vacuum symbol systems cannot simply be rejected they must be replaced where there is no replacement the mind will revert to familiar structures in at times of crisis bafflement or defeat religion centered on the worship of a male god create moods and motivations that keep women in a state of psychological dependence on men and male authority while at the same time legitimating the political and social authority 
of fathers and sons in the institutions of society. And honestly, what she's saying there completely applies to white people as well. You could replace all of that with talking about white people and their dominance of minorities completely. Um, and so this is real where I really have a problem with her is that she remained Christian. Yeah. It's hard to swallow when, you know, she can easily see those negative fucking harmful effects that this religion has had on people of color and on women and still be like, what? I'm a believer that wait, what? I mean, honestly, um, actually reading the Bible in its entirety and seeing all of the misogynistic and racist shit in it is part of why I totally fucking let go of that after, you know, having been raised in that shit. I mean, um, you know, and it's hard for me as a white person to deal with it sometimes in conversation, because obviously I cannot speak over an experience that I don't know. But at the same time, I do know Christianity. And I have nothing good to say. And I've seen the political and racist union of these things. I mean, honestly, this is why. I mean, even people that see the evils on both sides of politics and religion have never been able to understand it in the way that somebody that grows up inside of a private school, because they are inseparable. There is, there is no difference between them. Right. They are the same thing. Um, and so... It's just, it's just weird to me to like have to, I don't know, to interpret people's actions and for, or for people to not see sometimes if politics doesn't come up and it's a religious issue or if religion doesn't come up and it's a political issue, um, that people don't see that these things are, they're always connected. That's, that's what the propaganda system is. It is stereotypes about everything that you don't know. Right. And everything in the world connects, whether you understand it or not. Either your understanding connects or your misunderstanding connects. But we can go again. I don't need to rant anymore. Yeah. I mean, every time I have to, like, go grab. <laughs> the tab for it and pull that window back up before I can hit play. Cause I have to drop it down to like, see comments and shit. Uh, Without alternative belief systems, black folks embrace the values of the existing system, which daily reinforce learned helplessness. Mass media continually bombard us with images of African-Americans, which spread the message that we are hopeless trapped, unable to change our circumstances in meaningful ways. No wonder then that a generation of black folks who learn much of their knowledge of race and racism from the movies and television see themselves as victims, page 58, or that they see the only way out of being a victim is to assume the role of victimizer. 
while Shelby Steele chastised black folks for accepting the equation of blackness as victimization. To be black is to be a victim. Therefore, not to be a victim is not to be black. He does not examine white investment in this equation. Yet, those black folks who embrace a victim identity do so because they find it, medi it mediates relations with whites, that it is easier to make appeals that call for sympathy rather than redress and reparation. As long as white Americans are more willing to extend concern and care to black folks who have a victim-focused black identity, a shift in paradigms will not take place. In order to identify as victims, black folks must create ways to highlight issues of accountability that accurately address both the nature of our victimization within white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and the nature of our complicity. When individual black people project a victim identity because it brings their concerns into greater visibility, they are acting in complicity with an assaultive structure of racist domination in which they invest in the absence of agency. To name oneself a victim is to deny agency. As long as white Americans have difficulty coping with the assertion of agency and self-determination by individuals or collective groups of black folks, victimization will continue to be the location of visibility. Stop. All marginal groups in this society. Who Say pause. Yeah. Um, when individual black people project a victim identity because it brings their concerns into greater visibility, they are acting in complicity with an assaultive structure of racist domination in which they invest in the absence of agency. To name oneself a victim is to deny agency. As long as a white as long as white Americans have difficulty coping with the assertion of agency and self-determination by individual or collective groups of black folks, victimization will continue to be the location of visibility. I think the problem here is that white people have no agency. They're individualistic and they are removed. And like we've talked about before, when this first started is that they specifically want to be read as they would project themselves. Um, and so because of this, um, how can you have a sense of agency when you're constantly pretending? I think the problem with white people is they don't know that they're in this constant, um, they're in this constant insecurity, um, with presenting themselves to other people with how they have to compete with other people in the system um, and then to bring equality into that. Um, it can be really insulting to them to uh, think that other people have culture or more uh, perspective on things in some ways. Um, and honestly, sometimes that is really irritating to me, especially as a white person that does not identify with other white people and has a really weird story of leaving religion and capitalistic thinking and stuff like that. But like on, 
for the most part, like nothing is very exceptional. And so they just feel, I don't think white people ever really feel like they're exceptional anyway. And I think that maybe this is why they get so insecure when they have to listen to other people asking for recognition. Uh, and not that it's right, but I do think that that's where it hits. Um, so yeah, that was all that I had to say about that. I don't necessarily feel that way, but that's my common perception of dealing with the public. For grave injustice, who are victimized by institutionalized systems of domination, race, class, gender, etc., are faced with a peculiar dilemma of developing strategies that draw attention to one's plight in such a way that will merit regard and consideration without re-inscribing a paradigm of victimization. When African Americans locate our concerns about racism and white supremacy within a discourse that centers around victimization, we may gain the attention of whites while surrendering a focus on self-determination, page 59. There's no accident that the voice that speaks loudest against the evocation of a framework of victimization is most often the one that focuses on the need for racial separatism for black folks to assume total responsibility for improving our lot. Both discourses are totalizing. Nude organized struggle for black self-determination is needed to shift the focus from a framework of victimization to one of accountability. For it is that discourse that allows African Americans to recognize our complicity, our need for an ongoing process of decolonization and radical politicization while remaining steadfastly clear about the primary role the vast majority of white Americans play in perpetuating and maintaining white supremacy. Indeed, the very white folks who see black folks as scamming to get something for nothing via a public discourse of victimhood tend to resist divesting of that racist socialization that makes them more comfortable with black folks who are wounded, white folks who want all black Americans to repudiate a victim-focused identity must be prepared to engage in a subject-to-subject -subject encounter with black folks who are self-determining. To embrace this shift would be to open up to the very vision of full racial equality, which King found so many white Americans could not imagine. Those white Americans who are eager to live in a society that promotes and rewards racial equality must be willing to surrender outmoded perceptions of black neediness that socialize them to feel comfortable with us only when they are in a superior caretaking role. Until masses of white Americans confront their obsessive need for a black, black victim who lacks the agency to call for an accounting that would really demand a shift in the structure of this society, the rhetoric of victimization will continue to flourish. Page 60. Black Americans who exploit the rhetoric of victimization do so not only because it grants them moral authority, because it provides a platform for which demands can be made that are not mutual. If only white folks 
need to change, then black folks are not required to undergo processes of radical politicization. Many African Americans feel victimized, even though our ancestors certainly suffered harsher repression and injustice, because there has been an increased level of expectation. Those black folks raised in the segregated South were taught to expect only exploitation at the hands of whites, were not disappointed or psychologically crushed by forms of social exclusion and discrimination that were deemed minor. Nowadays, most black folks are taught by the rhetoric of liberal eyes of liberal democracy coming to us all from mass media that they can expect to be treat, treated equally. When this does not happen, a, dis enabling, a disenabling sense of powerlessness and helplessness surfaces. That sense of victimization is linked to higher levels of expectations. Recently, I was giving a talk at Harvard University about black rage at white supremacy. I was saddened by the number of black female graduate students in the audience who spoke at great length about the terrible hardships they faced. Acutely aware of the myriad ways racial victimization articulates itself, they expressed a victim-focused identity. Yet their sense of victimization seemed to be totally out of proportion to a larger reality. They saw themselves as victims because they have imagined they would be treated as equals. And when this did not happen, they lacked the inner resources to confront and cope effectively. Contrary to Shelby Steele's assertion that black folks claim more racial victimization than we have actually endured, the specific incidences they named documented actual victimization. However, their inability to respond to racist aggression with militant resistance seemed to intensify the feeling of victimization. One student described being in a class on feminist theory where my work was read page 61. She found in that work a space of recognition and support. Yet, the day it was discussed in class, the white woman professor declared that no one was really moved by my work, that I was too negative. Unwilling to assert her agency, her engagement with the text, this young black woman felt both silenced and victimized. She felt like dropping out of graduate school. Had she resisted in this classroom, in this classroom setting, she would not have felt victimized. Instead, she felt her blackness devalued, even as she surrendered her personal agency, and with it, a sense of personal integrity. While militant response might not have gained her rewards, it would have preserved her sense of self. Teaching in privileged white institutions, I constantly encounter black students who feel victimized, who do not contextualize racist aggression so that they distinguish between the pain of being not invited to a party or left out of a discussion from severe economic deprivation, lack of access to basic skills and resources, etc. To counter the fixation on the rhetoric of victimhood, black folks must engage in a discourse of self-determination. That discourse need not be rooted in separatist movement, but can be part of an inclusive struggle to end racist domination. Progressive struggle to end white supremacy recognizes the political importance of accountability and does not embrace the rhetoric of victimhood, even as 
vigilantly calls attention to actual victimization and of SA5. That kind of makes me angry on that student's behalf. Well, and at the same time, I mean, I, I can't, obviously, again, I cannot relate in the particular context, but at the same time, um, with my similar situation and being at work today, being listening to people shitting on communists, obviously, that is why it's not the same, because you can't tell that I'm a communist just by looking at me. Uh, so, but the the thing of not speaking up about it um, is the thing that's weird to me because it, it does give you the loss of a sense of self. And certainly worse than today, I have had issues where I have not said anything at all. I've just let it go. And that did, that does linger on me a lot more than I think maybe it does other people. Um, and I guess that depends on how extreme you are in what you think or how you perceive the things that are going on around you. But at the same time, um, sometimes I just don't want to misre misrepresent, you know what I'm saying? Which would seem to be harder for me. Um, I think that if I have them, if I had the mind that I do, uh, and I happen to be someone else. Um, I don't know how I wouldn't be able to talk about my own lived experience in certain ways. Um, because it seems to be like blackness is not something to theorize about. That's, that's just a reality. That's just what you are. Whereas the things that I believe are theories... Uh, the only thing that I deal with is being perceived as a woman. Um, and being perceived as a woman, I can usually tell somebody to go fuck themselves. Um, being perceived as... Not even perceived. Um, being a black person that has to listen to this and then tell someone that they really registered with them. Um... I would find it weird that you wouldn't tell that professor that they're the worst professor ever, but I guess it is 1996. So. Right. That's the link. Like, like current time. Yeah. A lot more comfortable. That can still happen. It's not bullshit. happening very often. Right. And it just, it was not as frequent or as Acceptable I just as, can't imagine you know, as like an to address as a professor and as an intellectual how you could just be like oh well, your work's not very influential and nobody is moved by it and it's like oh well can you show me this the study and the survey that you took on that Right. Because like I, 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 I am a sociology major. And so I'm just like, okay, so like, can you give me the data there? 
Right. That fucking teacher was basically asserting her personal fucking opinion as fact that applied across no, I mean, the board to anybody who obviously She was obviously moved by it or she wouldn't be such a bitch about it. Right. That was a very reactionary thing for her to say. No, she got she uncomfortable. She felt personally called out for her own fucking you know, internalized misogyny, her own fucking racism, those things, and didn't know how to deal with them other than trying to silence students in the room before anybody could speak up to say anything good about Bell Hook's writings. She's like, yeah, we're going to talk about this, but by the way, nobody respects this person. What? What? Like, bitch, you don't speak for anybody but yourself. That right there, that audacity, that caucasity, she thought she could speak for, like, all of the people who had ever fucking read Bell Hook's work. Like, yeah, nobody was impressed by this. It's too negative. Like, no, it's too real for your bitch ass. Like, you took it personal. Even though Bell said repeatedly through here, don't take it fucking personal. Just no, once you happen. realize, once you realize it, there is no guilt. There is only understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. But it's like so many people get hung up on their fucking cognitive dissonance because to understand, they must first acknowledge where there's things that were taught to them, ingrained in their thought patterns that are actually racist or sexist either way upholding this fucked paradigm and they have to make that choice to acknowledge that and to change that and go fuck i i that's not how reality really works now i see this bigger picture in that right there a lot of people don't want to do that they would rather remain apathetic and pretend like you're asking too much of them to be like here how about you learn from other people's experiences because other people's experiences aren't necessarily the same as yours. You know, this is why I lose my mind all the time. And this is why uh -huh. people, I think feel as though I'm harsh or that I'm very reactionary. Honestly, I just am very blunt when I type, but, and I don't think I've had a fight with anybody publicly uh, like this on podcast, but like, it's <laughs> really frustrating to me to see this happen online just in general and i do lose my mind um and i'm usually pretty good at holding it together but since this whole new stuff that we're not going to talk about here has started um i'm just realizing again that people want to have opinions on things that they don't understand and that's exactly the problem is that people get offended by opinions that they don't understand and that they take stands for opinions that they don't understand and that they don't really know what's going on at all. And so my whole problem is that, like, if you don't know what you're talking about, then don't talk. But people don't know how. They don't know how. And honestly, like, I'm lucky that I grew up in the family that I did in this only this one fucking aspect is that my dad in his second marriage 
was involved with a mixed race family of black, white, and Mexican. And then after that, I went to a white supremacist school, white supremacist school, but then I left after graduating immediately and I did not associate with that anymore. But being exposed to other people and cultures when I was still under 10 years old was crucial. And then leaving after yep. high school was crucial. I mean, there you've got, I'm weird for doing that, especially as a woman single by myself, but you've got to do it. Like you have to do it. Right. That's self-care to separate yourself from those things that you know are fucking wrong. As not cool self-care ever, but you should do it. Right. Cutting ties can be really fucking healthy. When they're toxic ones, snip, snip. But it's just crazy to me because it, because it is so, it's so widespread. It's all of the time. It doesn't matter where you go. There is constant fuck communists, fuck Russia, love Ukraine, fuck abortion, fuck. I mean, like you're reading it all of the time. You're reading these things all of the time. You're getting assaulted by all of this information all the time. And if you don't have any sense of self, you are going to be eaten alive. And honestly, yeah, that is our entire population. They're being eaten alive and we are being eaten alive because we're associated and we can't escape. Well, even when we go on like Facebook and we are in a space that we shouldn't have to feel like that in, we still come across that shit. And it's like, Oh fuck. Uh, how, how did, Every you know, day. this troll get in here? Um, you know, Hmm. Yeah, it's too much being bombarded with the shit every fucking where you go. It's, it's really uncomfortable, too, because I was thinking about it today when my boss was specifically just as far as the communist part. Um, the level of pretending is absolutely insane. And it's and it's weird to think that people are just like, yeah, kill these motherfuckers or like whatever, or like fuck these motherfuckers. And you're just standing there just like, I'm not telling you this and I'm working harder for you than anybody else that you have ever had. And you don't feel comfortable ever telling them that because you don't know what they're gonna do. And it's weird to feel that way in an environment in which, like, there is not any immediate action being taken on us, but uh, you can hear it when it's starting and it's scary. Right. That's the thing. When people are saying shit like that about wanting to kill commies, how comfortable are you supposed to feel looking at them and being like, well, wait a fucking minute. I'm, I'm one of those commies you're talking about wanting to kill because you simply don't even fucking understand what it means. Yeah. And I can't imagine what that's like to be able to walk or to have to walk around and not be able to hide yourself. Right. Uh, Cause that's the only thing that I'm good at. 
Even being cute, I can definitely hide. I just don't talk. It's really not hard. I did know this girl that said, uh, or that had a tattoo. Um, it said sedition, not sedation. Nice. I wouldn't mind having that one too. <laughs> right. But no, yeah, I'm, um, from having to hide myself intellectually, like, it's not hard to see how you cannot hide yourself in other ways. Like, I can't hide myself as a woman, obviously. And it's even worse if... It's some other reality, so. But like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I just also have a Sarah in my face giving me kisses. No, I can see that. That's totally fine. Um, If you want to be done, we can uh, show me some things. Or we could show me some things tomorrow after the um, current event. Okay. Um, well, if we're going to wrap this up, I will hit the music and, um, if you want, I, I, I will take a moment to W A L K the doggos and, uh, then we can rendezvous back in here and I can give you that tutorial. Uh, All right. Um, okay. yeah, either tonight or tomorrow in there. Um, or I'm always off all day on Sunday. I don't do anything on Sunday at all. Okay. Well, whatever works. I don't know. I'll still be up for a while. I'm just um, scared. I'm not going to remember. Well, I mean, once, oh, well, there's two things. Um, maybe we can just handle one of them tonight. Uh, it will just be software set up for you and you won't have to remember anything. Um, okay. The, the um, tutorial on this software that we might want to go at with a fresh head on Sunday. John, next week it will be Wednesday again, I believe. Uh, it, I mean, I'm I usually don't get scheduled on Wednesday nights at the bar, um, so it should be next Wednesday night, and it will be challenging sexism in Black life and the integrity of black womanhood so, yeah um, and until then you can catch us tomorrow for the current event stream um i'm not sure if there's anything else that we're going to be kicking out between uh then and there will be a lot of puns tomorrow if you're ready for them right tomorrow will probably be a three-hour tour as well joe biden <laughs> Okay. Oh God. I need to go pee. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you, all of you who are still here hanging out. I think James is still here. I can't really see who else still here. I just see that there's four of you still here. So I think Natalie's still on board, and probably Zach too. 
but thank you all for joining us. Appreciate it. You guys are diehards here with us for everything. And I love it. We will see you tomorrow. And if I can, if I can get past my dog, I will turn on some fucking music for you. Do it. I need to leave here. <laughs> Let's see. Is insistent on all of you. <laughs> fucking turd. Uh, give me the music. Give me the music. I'm scared I'll be stuck in here forever. Oh, no! Just don't worry about it. I don't know how to use it.